right, y'all. How you doing? Welcome to the show today, Crystal Kyle and friends. Um, so we have Vosh coming on today, and um, he's a really, really interesting Twitch streamer, YouTuber, political commentator, libertarian socialist. Um, I mean, it is somewhat new that we have, you know, in streamer culture, gamer culture, online culture, now debate bros on the left, because for a long time they were mostly on the right. And so he's one of the first, one mm. of the first of those. So um, really interesting stuff. He's got, he has a colossal following now. Can't wait to talk to him. Um, but boy, oh boy, did you drop a bomb on everybody. <laughs> so seemingly out of the blue, although not, but seemingly out of the blue, yeah. um, you and Sagar are out at the hill. You guys made the decision to do that. So yeah. why don't you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, you guys will be watching this on Friday or Saturday. Um, and Friday was Sagar and I's last day at the hill doing Rising, which I feel a lot of emotions about. Um, he actually pointed out, and I hadn't, because I'm not that smart, put this together. It's almost two years to the day since he started as host mm. um, right now. I think our very first time we posted stuff to YouTube was like June 1st of two years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of interesting the cycles that these things go in. And we're going to have more, you know, I don't want to divulge too much yet, but um, Sagar and I are going to continue to work together. And if you go to Kyle, uh, sorry, Crystal and Sagar <laughs> com. You can put in your email and find out what's going to be next. But I mean, the big thing is we believe in independent media, you know, and we believe in this new ecosystem and truly being out there on your own and putting your faith in the audience. And so that was where the leap of faith really came in. Um, but I couldn't be more proud of what we've been able to do at Rising in a short period of time and the type of values we've been able to put forward and conversations we've been able to have. And one of the things I'm maybe most proud of is the fact that we have an audience which is truly ideologically diverse across the spectrum. Um, there isn't a day go that went by that we weren't like pissing off some portion of our audience. And that's something that I actually feel really proud of. I can't believe it's only been two years. Yeah, that Sagar's been on the show because you guys b grew so fucking fast. Yeah, it really took off um, kind of right away. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. We so when we started posting rising on YouTube, um, the Hill YouTube channel had 5000 subscribers and it was they weren't posting anything there. It mm -hmm. was just completely moribund. So we really built the channel word. from the ground. Thank you. From the ground. And um, it was lying fallow, I guess, the uh, the YouTube oh, channel. Yes. So, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> the first thing, and I've said this many times, like the first thing that popped was um, an interview we did with Andrew Yang. Mm. And that was the first sign of like, oh, we might, this might be able to work. And then the other thing that really helped to bring awareness to the channel was having you on. Um, you came on very early, which is very nice of you. I didn't know you at all at that point. Um, having Jenk on, having Jimmy on, like people who had a following on YouTube. And that started to draw more attention to what we were up to. And it just kind of took off from there. And reflecting on, for me, having been in the cable news space and now being in the YouTube space, one of the many things that I like so much more about YouTube is the fact that it's not this like zero sum game. It's actually very symbiotic. So in cable news, you're either watching CNN or you're watching MSNBC. You can't be really watching both at the same time. So 
it feels mostly zero sum. Whereas in YouTube, there really is sort of like the symbiotic, you come on rising and we would get, you know, people in your following be like, oh, I like what's going on here. And they would subscribe, you know, and vice versa. We'd have people on who, you know, would bring attention to them and they would build a following from this. So that part of it, I really like. And then the other part that I really like is just people are actually paying attention. On cable news, it's like background noise. It's barely, you're barely registering what's being said. Oftentimes when I would write monologues for cable news, first of all, much, much shorter. And second of all, I knew I could make one point, make it a couple of times. And if it lands, that's a success. Whereas, you know, people follow, actually show up to watch your video and hear what you have to say and follow it very closely, every piece of it. So it's been fun. Yeah, you had you got to see both sides of the equation, the official real media world and the, <laughs> the new media world. And I remember Ro Khanna actually said this, not just to me, but it was me, Jimmy, and like a few other uh, lefty hosts where he was like, I've been going on cable news for years. You know how much interaction and response I get when I go on there? Yeah, next to nothing. Bupkiss. Yeah. I get nothing. Yeah. I go on any of the uh, lefty shows and he's like, my Twitter feed lights up. Yeah. There's a zillion people watching it. Everybody's got a comment. Everybody's got something to it's say. Just, it's a much more intimate connection with your audience. When you're on cable news, it really does feel like there's like a distance there. I mean, it feels very unreal that anyone's watching you, whereas it, it feels much closer on YouTube. So um, so anyway, it's I'm ex- very excited about what's going to be next. And again, crystalandsoccer.com to find out that first. Um, and that's that announcement is coming is coming really, really soon. So I'm very excited about that. But I, I do feel, I definitely feel sad about leaving the Hill, which do has you? been... Yeah, for sure. I mean, this was my baby and we worked our asses off on this thing. Like, you know, been committed to mm, it very, very, very deeply. Your baby. See, now the independent side is coming out of me. Your baby is the thing that you built. Right. But there are other people who claim that that's theirs. So there's, you know, there's management that you have to deal with. Yeah. Fuck that. You (laughs) You built this thing all on your own. And then there's management that's like, we disagree. I think that's mine, even though I did none of the work. <laughs> well, I'm just, uh, they've been very good to me, so I don't want to trash them right now. But I'll trash them for you. I don't want to trash okay. them. But, uh, but that is a big part of the, the motivation is like, I believe very much in what we've been up to. And I think that, you know, and I believe in independent media. And so that's all I'm going to say for now. Okay. All right. You got it. We'll leave it at that. So um, there's this, this kind of went viral. There's this tweet that has popped up on my timeline about a thousand times. Um, it's from Forbes, and they say that there's a new study that shows people working from home are having sex, <gasps> dating, taking naps, and doing side hustles on company time. <gasps> Outrageous. How could they? And, uh, <laughs> you know, so this actually really puts in perspective a lot of the other stuff that's been out there recently where so many bosses and management and executives are like, we want to get people back into the office. Right. We're not sure this whole work from home thing is working out, you know? Yeah. When in actuality, what they were saying during the pandemic when everyone was forced to work from home was actually we've seen productivity improve and increase. Um, yeah, we we talked here, too, about the it was the WeWork CEO, mm-hmm. which there's like a lot going on there because mm-hmm. WeWork also, I mean, they're in the business of renting office space. Yep. Of course, they want butts and chairs back in offices. Um, but the comment that he made was like, well, 
you'll know who the good workers are by the ones who come back. I'm paraphrasing his wording, his exact words, but that's basically it. And yeah, this is really a control game because no one's asserting that these workers weren't getting done what they mm-hmm. needed to get done. Right. It's just like, how dare you have like a life and a good time and do what you want to do and have autonomy and flexibility on company time. It, we need to see you in the sea so we can control you and every aspect of your day. You would think that they would be smart enough to say if productivity has increased or even if it stays the same, it's like, all right, yeah, just keep working from home because more is getting done. But if they're telling people we want you to come in despite the fact that productivity has increased, that that's really weird. It's almost like power for power's sake, you know? Well, but I think it's also, there's like an inkling of ah! some... <laughs> I think it's also there's an inkling of there's some some dangerous ideas percolating. Mm-hmm. Like people are starting to question a little bit whether they need work to be the end all be all of their identity. Because that was the other there were a couple stories about that among the sort of like white collar affluent suburban class early on in the pandemic where it was like once I stripped all the trappings of the work identity away and I'm just literally doing the job, it really changed my relationship to this work. And you see this rebound. You see people moving. You see them, you know, buying ho- different homes and different places with more space. You see them scaling back and wanting to work part time. Um, you see a rebound, a, a change in family. Some of these things are not Uh, by choice. Some of them are forced changes that were forced on people. And some of them are by choice by sort of rethinking of what that's all. So whether those trends are real or not, I think bosses are very threatened by the idea that workers may be putting work less at the center of their identity and actually valuing other things in their lives. I don't know if it's an exciting time or, or a scary time, because with all the changes that are brought about, as a direct result of COVID and what has happened to the economy as a result of COVID, it can go either way. I mean, the the game is so rigged right now and the rules are so rigged right now that it feels like any changes that come will, by definition, be terrible because the economy has never been more rigged. The rich have never been richer. Poor have never been poorer. Yep. You know, there's... So any changes feel like it. we're screwed. You know, like we're going to make changes that end up perpetuating the status quo to one extent or another. But at the same time, I mean, it is theoretically possible that now we're at a point where, you know, there's a tipping point and maybe people will revolt and at the very least say, no, we're not fucking working from an office. We're going to keep working mm-hmm. from home and fucking, you know, yeah. maybe there'll be like some sort of weird uh, <laughs> suburban rebellion of like, fuck your office space. We're done with office space. We're yeah. going to st- spend more time at home. We're a bunch of people getting RVs and doing that shit, you know? So, yeah. I don't know. I don't know whether to be excited or scared, but all I know is it does feel as if there are massive changes coming, whether or not we like it. There have to be, right? I mean, I think you don't have a year like the one we just had where habits and priorities were changed so dramatically without there being follow-on effects. It's very hard to predict what those follow-on effects ultimately are. Um, You know, one of the things that changed is not just obviously the ability to work remotely has always been there, but there's never been a culture around it. There's never been like, it's never been acceptable to say, hey, can we do that meeting on Zoom? And now that's, of course, it's not just acceptable. It's totally expected. Jeffrey Tubin loves that. Yeah. I, and we all love that for Jeffrey mm-hmm. Tubin, don't we? Yeah, um, I, I don't. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but that culture of acceptability is, I think, shifted a lot. So we'll see where it ends up. Yeah, indeed. So anyway, 
I'm really excited for this conversation. So this is streamer, Twitch streamer, YouTuber, libertarian socialist, political commentator, all around interesting character, Vosh. Enjoy. Vosh, thanks so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've been a fan of your work for quite a while now. And, um, you know, even when I find that even when I disagree with you, I find your takes insightful and interesting. And so it's a, you know, it's a real pleasure to sit here and talk with you. Um, There's so much stuff I want to get to. I want to get into our agreements and our disagreements, among other things. But first and foremost, I want to know a little bit about you. Tell me, like, your origin story. How did you become a streamer? What got you interested in politics and all that stuff? God, well, first of all, the pleasure is entirely mine. Uh, Thank you. And second of all, um, it's all been a pretty recent affair. I've always been involved in, like, the online debate circle, you know, running around arguing with folks you disagree with. And I was really frustrated because it seemed like there was a really consistent aversion to particular rhetorical strategies from people on the left online, you know. For years and years, there were basically no socialists active on YouTube, or at least they were very sparing. Um, and when they came about, they did mostly video essay content, which is great. Mind, I love the video essays, you know. Um, but the right, you know, the conservative right, they had this incredible diversity of tactics. You could find them anywhere from hobby channels to gaming channels to like analysis and debate, live commentary news. They were absolutely everywhere. So I thought, you know, it'd be fun to dip my toe in the water and show people that you can be a loud, contentious, argumentative uh, person on the left. You don't have to give all that up. You don't have to be like a hyper sanctimonious, you know, like quiet type to advocate those politics. Yeah. And so what are some of the influences on your on your politics and your views? And for people who don't know that much, like how would you label or describe your political worldview? I go by libertarian socialist for the most part. A lot of people conflate socialism with authoritarianism, which while I recognize there are plenty of autocrats who have taken the label socialist for their own ends, definitely not the case. It's democracy all the way down, baby. In terms of influences, I mean, um, one of the communities that I was in, the large part was Destiny's. He does a lot of online debate content, so there's definitely that. Um, the, <laughs> you know, not not to, not to win points here, but the founding of the Justice Democrats and the subsequent political effects that had also had a pretty big influence on me. The idea that we actually can make a difference, as you know, cliched or corny as that sounds, that sort of thing. Shameless and in terms pandering, of pandering, I see you. <laughs> oh yeah, Kyle you know, butt make the biscuit. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Please go on, Vosh. <laughs> Tell me more. Get... I'm how wonderful I am. <laughs> Don't want to get voted off at the end of the round. You know how it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that and the political opinions have been a synthesis of a great many. I mean, you've had um, Chomsky on this program, have you not? Yes, yep. we have. One of the most influential people to me in terms of the foundation of my ideas, an anarchist, linguist. And it's incredible how often um, semantic and linguistic, um, I don't know, uh, disagreements come up when you're talking politics as well. So I think those are really intricately interlinked. Stuff like that, it all came together. And I don't know. It's just... Uh, it's it's a big melting pot, you know, like America. Very proud to be who I am. So um, I know personally when it came to secular talk, I first had the feeling of, oh, my God, I made it and I'm actually doing it when I hit 100,000 subscribers because I remember it took me forever to get to 1,000 subscribers and then it felt like forever to get to 10,000 subscribers. And then when I finally hit 100, I was like, 
in the back of my mind, this was like a lifetime goal and I hit it relatively quickly. And so that was, that was the first time I really felt like, oh, I made it. And even when I hit like 500, it, nothing felt as amazing as the 100 line. So my question for you is whether it's subscribers or whether it's whatever on Twitch, whatever it may be, did you feel at any point like, oh, wow, like I've made it, like I've kind of made it in this streaming thing? I mean, it'd be impossible for me to deny that at least by some metrics I have, but I'm a pretty ambitious guy. I don't know. Um, there's always a bigger milestone, right? Um, the 100,000 felt really, 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 really good. But I feel like a lot of that, I mean, you trailblazed, right? I came into this game a lot later than you did. It feels like the sky is, a, a, you know, a lot higher. So I guess we'll have to see. But something tells me that even if I hit like a million or so, which I mean, oh my God, that'd be amazing. But I feel like the next day I'd go like, okay, okay, I hit a million. That's great. Okay. But there are gaming channels with 10 million. So yeah, really, that's right. that, like, you know, politics in on YouTube, it's a, it's a small fish in a very big pond. I'm hoping that collectively the industry expands quite a bit. I have um, little kids and they watch, you know, these just like, terrible Horrendous. channels <laughs> so bad like, you know someone like playing with toys and they're watching them play with the toys or whatever I'm like you have those toys you could go play with them but they want to watch like yeah. the other person go through these clunky routines and it's always humbling when you're look when you look at the view count it's like 20 million views no. like, what am i doing with my life here really puts um, you in your place yeah you're you're, yeah. you're you're like you know my channels do great you go online find a slime tutorial with like 22 million views right. for channel yeah, like, wow, and you're my like yeah, mm. well, my radar got 200,000 views today and my kids are like, that's nice, mom. We're so not impressed. Um, <laughs> so you're saying you basically you sort of don't feel like you have made it, at least in the conception that you have for where you where you want to be. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I always I guess I'd always want to be bigger. Right. It's always more fun to be had. Yeah. Tell me. Tell me about your future plans, because you. You just raised nearly $300,000 for mm. a relief fund for Palestinian children. Now, by the way, massive credit on that. That's that's doing like real world good that I, it's hard to touch that amount of real world good. Like, I don't think most people can touch that amount of real world good. So I want to give you massive credit for that. But like, what are your plans for the future in terms of getting involved in politics in a direct way, in an indirect way or otherwise? Oh. First of all, thanks. It was my community that put up the money. I just played the video games. I had the easy job there. Um, but with regards to the future of things, I feel like um, I, I feel like I want to get a, a lot more involved in the IRL stuff because, um, for instance, canvassing. Um, I have an audience, and of those, I imagine that if I decided to canvass for a given candidate, I could probably get hundreds of people out there for like a daily door knocking and months leading up to an election. That would be incredible, and I feel like a pretty good exertion of whatever potential influence I could have. That kind of stuff really appeals to me because there are upper caps to the online debate bro thing. The mm -hmm. fact of the matter is, it's only done by so many people, and once you've talked to those people and dealt with those ideas, is. That's that. The reality is most political influence isn't decided by having the best idea and expressing that idea. It's by having the power to back it up and having followers is a form of power. So it, it, it's not just about like the the epic online owns, I think. Eventually, you have to take that to the real world, a la Justice Dems, a la Inspiration, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's something that we should all try to model. Yeah. And that 
having an actual following is is a very unusual thing. I mean, yeah, it's, something it's that rare than Kyle you think. and I definitely yeah. talk about is these cable news hosts. <laughs> very few of them. I mean, really, I think the only ones that would have an actual following that would go whatever platform they're on would probably be Matto and Tucker. Yeah. Um, and so having like recognizing that that's a powerful thing to have and wanting to use it for good is actually a very unusual thing. Um, tell me about what gave you the inspiration to want to do the stream to raise the money for Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. Um, what was that experience like? How long did you stream for? It was like 30 hours or something insane. Just like t talk. Tell us a little bit more about that. There were a lot of people in my periphery. Uh, like Chapo Trap House and Sean Vids, uh, who were doing their own live streams. And to be honest, it actually hadn't occurred to me up to that point because it's not mm. an impulse that I have. When I see problems like that, what was going on in Israel and Palestine, the attacks on the Palestinian people, the bombings, the justifications, normally my thought is, okay, time to get angry on stream. You know, that's the de that's the default reaction. Right. Um, but I saw other people and I thought, oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> we, we actually have, an, we have a whole, um, you know, a whole buffet of options open to us. And it's something that I really should take advantage of more often because the comparative impact of getting your community together to do something like that is way, way, way bigger than just adding it to the repoir of whatever you're going to complain about on stream that week. You know, it's, a, I think I might defer to this a little more in the future. It's like a, it's a, a reflex that needs to be built up deciding to do stuff like that. And it was a 27 and a half hour stream. It was uh, absolutely spectacular. And by the way, was barely even feeling it by the end. Playing Nintendo 64 classics, how could I even feel tired? Great stuff. <laughs> Amen to that. Did I, yeah. I don't you, really believe you, but it's a good... Did I either you uh, play N64 <laughs> games? Oh, or? I, that was my era for sure. Uh, well, Kyle rocking it. it. Crystal? I yeah. had a Super Nintendo. But yeah, I played I, that too. No, that's when I was respect. a kid. Yeah. That was, that's a, <laughs> a little just older. slightly before me, but no. Excellent stuff either way. And very big into Atari as well. We oh, had like see, now, now you lost Atari me. Game under the <laughs> now, now, now you lost so me. Now I'm really aging, <laughs> dating myself. Um, tell me a little bit about your process because I'm curious, like I, you know, the streaming world is definitely outside of my sort of like purview or comfort zone or whatever. How do you prepare for a stream? How do you feel during the stream? How do you think about like afterwards that was awesome or that was, here's what I need to improve on. Like just talk a little bit about that piece. Um, yeah, I try to treat it a little bit like stand-up comedy. I don't like doing very much preparation because I feel like it wrecks the flow and, and mm. the improv. But uh, for me, because everyone has a different approach to this. For me, I feel like with this type of thing, it's everyone has their style of presentation. News commentators have their own rhythm that they tend to go through. I mean, from people like Rachel Maddow, like you said, to like Glenn Beck, they all have, there's a, a presentational style that you can rely on when you go and there. And she actually learned from him. Yeah. She said she, she modeled herself. His, yeah. She said she modeled herself style. after his style, believe it or not. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a, uh, what a departure from the original intent. That's actually really funny. Yeah. Um, I um but but for me I think like first of all online politics should be fun and engaging for everyone. There's no excuse to making any of this boring unless you're talking about the nitty-gritty of policy details. This is interesting stuff, consequential stuff. It affects people's lives. It should be interesting. So you need to go with that. And things need to be funny. They always have to be funny because humor is disarming. And I understand that because of the way I tend to present myself, the 
edgy debate bro argumentative it's <laughs> it can make it easy for people to dislike you and god knows that's the case with a lot of the reception online but you mitigate that significantly by trying to be funny and that's if you can keep that rhythm going you know the stream feels like it passes in the blink of an eye afterwards i just think okay were there any ideas that i conveyed uh, inaccurately here was there anything here that i meant to make a better point on but i got distracted by the flow and ended up not because it would have been too much of a break from the you know the the rhythm of the show and i've been trying to get better with that over time and do you feel like you're always able to get into kind of like a flow state when you're doing it or sometimes you do you have ways that you activate that in yourself do sometimes you feel like you struggle to get into that state as long as I'm not hungry, I'm usually fine getting into it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the critical weakness, though. Because you can tell, anytime I end stream early, it's be, I'm like, oh, God, guys, I didn't have a protein bar for breakfast this morning. I'm really sorry. I can't. And that's every time, by the way. It's a tremendous weakness. I feel like a cartoon character, like a big like a, a, a big bear, you know, that likes picnics. Like a very obvious weakness. <laughs> It's it's fun you say that because uh, my brain shuts down when I don't eat like well, literally. Well, Jenk Uger famously says I will literally forget mid sentence what I was talking about when I'm hungry. 100%. Like he just can't he can't do Same. anything when he's hungry. But Same. anyway, um, I wanna I wanna um, before we get into areas where we might disagree, I wanna talk a little bit more about your ideology. So you describe yourself as as libertarian socialist. You know, I've taken some political compass tests that describe me as libertarian left. I take other ones that describe me as social democratic, and I've taken ones that describe me as libertarian socialist, just like yourself. So, you know, I actually don't even know exactly how I'd refer to myself because some of my ideas are standard social democratic, and then some of my ideas are a little post-capitalist. So I guess my question for you is in regards to worker-owned co-ops. Mm -hmm. When I think of worker-owned co-ops, I generally like the idea, and I like the idea of incentivizing them as well. And this is a question that I asked Richard Wolf, though, which is, do you see... Um, is it reasonable to say that businesses over a certain size, it makes more sense to me for those to be democratic, but as long as you have sufficient regulation of the marketplace, that if you have a smaller business, that actually that traditional capitalist hierarchy is not inherently oppressive. Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, I think um, worker cooperatives have their place. I think that fundamentally they tend to be a more ethical form of organization than a traditional autocratic firm where, you yeah. know, the boss is the ruler and that's that. Um, but there are natural limitations on the extent to which they can function. So one example would be there are a lot of businesses that are just two guys working together, you know, yeah. or two girls. It's 2021. Who knows? Um the, a, a, like in that environment, the legal framework of a worker cooperative in some instances can seem like a regulatory bureaucratic mess that only interferes with the work that they do. So I think the argument should be, you know, we shouldn't impose cooperatives on everything. We should look at the available data and say, which policies can we impose to make sure worker cooperatives are heavily incentivized in the industries where they will do the most good. And it's possible that over time, as worker cooperatives become more normalized, you know, more culturally and legally, um, more off the hat, uh, it'll be easier to incorporate them into different forms of organization that are currently unviable. A lot of it has to do with like civil structure, right? When people expect to be ruled over by an autocratic manager, that's what society defers to. That's what we organize around. But when the opposite is the case, well, 
you know, for hundreds of years, serfs were led by feudal lords. That was considered a natural form of organization. If we tried that today, there would be riots. Maybe that's the next step. You gradually transition into something, and then 100 years from now, nobody will ever even believe that people used to have autocratic managers. Hmm. What is your view so far of the Biden administration how they've done, have they met expectations or exceeded expectations, lower than your expectations? Like, just give me a little bit of a flavor of your assessment of of his term so far. There are a few things he's done that I was impressed by. I expected an infrastructure bill to be posited later in the administration. I knew it would happen, but I thought it would happen later. Um, Unfortunately for people who want to criticize the Biden administration, most Democrats are going to be enamored with some very easy wins that he has to roll Mm -hmm. up because Trump did so many obviously bad things that he gets to undo via executive action that it's like, of course, okay, yeah, you know, it's it's like. I would love to live in a country where a lot of the stuff Democrats fight for is like taken for granted. But unfortunately, that isn't the country that we live in. So Biden saying, you know, yeah, Jack, actually, uh, you know, um, ICE is no longer allowed to smack Mexican immigrants on the head when they see him <laughs> on the street. That Passing that EO. That's like, oh, God, what a breath of fresh air. Biden yeah, finally amazing. Yeah. Is he like is he he's probably going to end up being one of the better Democratic presidents, but that's a limited framework. You know, what is a good Democratic president and how far does that go? Really? We should be examining ways to critique him that acknowledge the relative strengths of his presidency, but then say, like, okay, compared to what and what are we aiming for exactly here? Was this infrastructure bill really sufficient? Are we really doing anything about the rampant growth of the military industrial complex? What is with the constant, constant posturing when it comes to his allegiance to the progressive left and then his like deference to the groups that ignore or oppose them? Stuff like that, you know, I think like- What what do you make of that actually? Because I mean, the obvious examples here too are, you know, $15 minimum wage just completely- fell off the agenda. Um, public option, which was already the more conservative position in the Democratic primary, in the budget he just released, it doesn't even contemplate, you know, like we're not even trying in spite of the fact that there's just a pandemic and a lot of people saddled with massive medical bills. Um, it looks like they're dropping the prescription drug reform plan just to negotiate with drug companies, which is the most obvious and popular thing in the world, but obviously comes in for a lot of um, criticism from from big pharma. Um what do you make of of those pieces? What does that say about his orientation towards the left? And what is it with all of these pieces lately that are like, we promise there he's really influenced by progressives and he's really <laughs> listening to the left. And look, Ron Klain retweeted someone. Isn't that yeah. amazing? <laughs> yeah, the thing that's absolutely wait, can I swear here? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. of course. The thing that's absolutely bullshit here is that the argument is like, oh, well, Biden can't do everything on his own. Sure, we know, and we know how the filibuster works, okay? But if it was Bernie who was president, you know, God, you know, that that alternate universe, let me be there. We know that even if he wasn't capable of pushing a policy through, he would be advocating for it every time somebody put a microphone in front of his face. Even if he couldn't snap his fingers and make Medicare for all, or even a public option, available instantly. Every chance he got, he would be pushing for it. But Biden doesn't. Biden stays quiet on a lot of the more progressive promises. He makes these promises, but then slowly the prominence of their advocacy drops from the speeches until 
he stops talking about it. And then the Democrats go, oh, well, you can't expect him to single-handedly do this or that. And, well, no, I can't. But I can expect him to talk about it. That is certainly a thing that I can expect of him. Trump never had any problem talking about the most ludicrous ideas his administration wanted to pass. A lot of those stupid ideas he actually got pushed through, through sheer dumb force of will. Mm-hmm. But we can't talk about a public option openly? No, no. This well, there's is no way Trump, for example, would let the Senate parliamentarian get in the way of something okay, that he wanted to do. No, we don't care about we the must, parliamentarian. Who are you? Respect. Yeah, we must respect the part. No, no, no. Of course not. <laughs> Plus this constant, the, 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 the compromise stuff. We must work with the Republicans. No, we don't have to actually has no, we don't. Um, no, because <laughs> they don't work with us. They obfuscate and they obstruct constantly. It's, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to this with regards to the Biden administration. You know, they're trying to wrest control of the Democratic Party away from its more democratic, socialist, progressive elements by encouraging everyone to believe deeply in their hearts that, you know what? Hey, in spite of how it seems, Biden is listening But they'll quiet with that over time, too. They saw what happened with Obama. Eight years of relative disappointment from the left wing of the Democratic Party. And Bernie Sanders does really well in the primary against Hillary Clinton. They know what happens when they don't placate, at least, Mm. you know, in language, the far left. That's a great that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, listen, the thing that got under my skin the most is actually news that came out this week that apparently they're going to all the way until September 30th. They said we're not doing any more reconciliation bills. Well, then you're admitting you're not going to do anything because you're not going to get anything through regular order. That's 60 votes. You need a bunch of Republicans. They're not going to sign on for anything. You could literally say we have the cure for cancer to release it. You guys have to sign on. They'd be like, fuck off. We're not going to do that. So no reconciliation, obviously nothing through regular order. And then the only thing that would remain is executive orders like, you know, legalizing marijuana or eliminating student loan debt or whatever. So what are they going to do? Nothing until September 30th. So I early on predicted that he would have a good first week or two, Biden. And he did. Like you said, he re- I think reversing the Trump executive orders was a good thing. I mean, he should have gone further, but still, it's better than nothing. But then after that, it was the one COVID relief package. And then everything just sort of dwindles away. And now we're left with nothing but the fluff pieces that are like, Biden's listening to the left, even though he's doing nothing now. Um, so <laughs> it's, but I it's get like your some- first day. Oh, so it's just it. like your first day at work, right? If you never want to do a day of work at your new job, you do really, really good for six months and then you taper off. Give everyone a really good first impression and then people will give you a lot of slack and leeway when you decide to start being, you know, <laughs> lazy. Um, not that I think Biden's lazy. I think this is a very calculated effort on his part and on the part of the Democratic Party to meet their goal for how far left they're willing to go, but to do it in the way that best placates the voting base. Um, And in that effect, I think they've been extremely successful. I think that Biden has made himself look very good and he's done a lot of good, but we're going to see how the rest of his presidency turns out, right? I mean, how long does that, um, does that afterglow last? Yeah. The reason why his approval rating was was really high and now is okay to good, yeah, Mm -hmm. is because he gave people $1,400 and he expanded the child tax credit and like very basic things that people were like, oh, this is making my life better. So I think that explains it. Now, I mean, could you imagine if he did like, if he actually tried on the real core democratic things, we'd all be 
really happy. But I want to ask you about some areas where we may have disagreements. I'm not sure. I actually don't think we have much disagreement on this stuff, but we have to flesh it out in order to get to I'll some point of agreement. Just to get some real disagreement here, you know, just to fight <laughs> it out. <laughs> just to make it so, interesting. Help us get more subscribers, Vosh. The, the first one, <laughs> the first one I want to ask you about is Bernie or Bust. So what's your position on Bernie or Bust? And then also like what do you think mine is? And then I'll lay out what my actual one is. <laughs> Sure. So my position on Bernie, there are two basic arguments. The first one is that I think that by basically any objective measure, you could argue that Biden's just a superior presidential candidate to Trump in terms of the harm done and the good done, and et cetera, et cetera. Those arguments are well-worn and played out. And I feel like, I mean, I feel like they're fairly self-evident. Um, the other argument that I have, and it's the one that I think is a little more appealing to progressives like myself and like the both of you, um, is that the vast, vast majority of the Democratic Party, the, the voters, I mean, they're not as far left as we are, tragically. And we need to move them over. That's our job. And the best way to do that is to show them the failings of the candidate they thought would save them. If you let Trump win again and Trump runs this country into the ground, then what are they going to think? Are they going to think Bernie Sanders could have saved us? No, they're going to think a Democrat could have saved us. Anything, anybody to pull us out of this wreck. And we saw that too, because in the 2020 election, the number one reason people voted for Biden was electability. They stopped being concerned about how far we could go and started being concerned with the bulwark, anything, anything but Trump. So you choose electability. How much of a manufactured narrative that is, is largely irrelevant. It's what they were willing to bite onto. But after Obama, Biden did, sorry, not Biden, Bernie did better in the primary against Hillary Clinton than he did in 2020 against the uh, the Voltron of moderate Democrats. And I think the reason for that is after eight years of Obama, Democrats weren't as terrified of the Republican Party. They were willing to experiment, to try more. It didn't work out, sure, but he did well, Bernie, given the circumstances. After Trump, they're just terrified. The threat of the Republican Party is how the Democrat Party keeps its voters in line. You have to pick the most moderate, centrist, uncontroversial candidate because the alternative is lunacy. And unfortunately, they're right. So we should be happy that Biden won if for no other reason than because it gives us an opportunity to criticize the people who are holding that line down. So as for, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Now, as for your position, I think you would probably agree with the with the, the substance of both of those critiques. A lot of the Bernie or Bust stuff that took place prior to the election, I felt was posturing. You know, Democratic Party, you better listen to us because if you don't, you're not going to win the election. And I don't necessarily have an issue with that as a strategy, though I'm not entirely sure if the Democrats care whether or not they win elections. It seems like their jobs are a lot easier when they sit in the sidelines and complain. It makes them look a lot better than when they're actually trying to lead. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I know there was a lot of divisiveness around the Bernie or Bust stuff that was centered around disagreements that I think could have been um, could have been mitigated with a conversation over some drinks, you know, between all sides. I mean, so but let's say somebody comes to you and they say, Vosh, I am hardcore Bernie or Bust. There is no way I'm voting for any other moderate Democrat. If Bernie doesn't get the nomination, I'm done. I'm out. Make your best case to try to convince that person, because I know you you were very critical of the Bernie or Bust people, but I'm curious what you would say to somebody who's hardcore in that camp to try to convince them. Well, depends on the road we go down. If that person thinks that Trump and Biden are comparable and how dangerous they'll be as presidents, then I think there's a lot of evidence against that. And I would go through that, whether we're talking harmed minority groups, whether we're talking about like the uh, tax cuts or like the um, the regulation of America's economy, that kind of stuff. I think there are 
really strong arguments on that front. If we're talking about anti-democratic strategy, then I'd give the argument that I just gave to you, the whole, we need Biden to be up there so we can criticize him. And then there were also people who just said, like, as a matter of principle, I'm not voting for any more of these centrist dipshits. I'm done. I'm done. Which, I mean, I just don't do anything on principle, really. For me, everything is a utilitarian question. It's how much good does this action bring? How much harm does this action bring? Mm. Which I understand is very unsatisfying to a lot of people, but I also think it's historically the strategy that leads to the most civil rights victories. If you go back and say, take a look at King or the suffragettes, the gay rights movement back in the 80s, you know, you'll find that a lot of the leaders were almost cynical in the way they approached the advocacy for their positions, not because they were cruel or heartless or because they didn't care, but because they knew, they saw in the past the wreckage of a thousand movements that had died on principle and they didn't want to be like that. And I respect that to an extent. I think it's just an unfortunate part of political organizing. Um, I voted for Biden and I feel like that was definitely the right choice. And part of my analysis is I think that Trump just made politics worse all the way around. I mean, it's sort of like what you're pointing to. He made it really easy for Democrats. All they had to be was not Trump. All they had to do was point to Trump. All they had to do in the primary to get people in line with the candidate they wanted to win was say, this is the electable guy. And my God, we can't have Donald Trump again. And with some justification, as you said, my concern is that they're going to basically, I mean, first of all, we might get Donald Trump again in 2024. So we're going to have the replay of that whole dynamic. And even if it's not Trump, I think they're going to use that same tactic of whoever it is, turning them into just as bad as Trump or even worse. This one's even worse than Trump um, in order to continue to be able to like use that fear, justifiable fear of like, this is terrible and the country's going to hell and like, this is incredibly bad for a lot of people to make sure that they continue to just say, look, you got to vote for the, I know you may not love this candidate, but you got to vote for them because they're the ones that can win. And, and that's the only thing we really need to focus on. I mean, they're playing good cop, bad cop, basically. They're just batting it back between the parties. They may be, you know, Democrats, good Republicans, bad, whatever. But the ultimate goal is for the good cop to extract your, you know, consent um, by, through the threat of the bad cop. And I mean, as time goes on, you're right. That pattern's going to get worse and worse. The future of the Republican Party is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's a leader, a, a trailblazer who will be known in history books. So and she's out, not even how do you get out of that cycle? That gets. That's the part I don't really know the answer to. Like, and that was the part of the uh, Bernie or bust arguments that I did find compelling is like, well, how do you break this cycle where they're just going to continue to you know, go down that it's going to be Trump and then it's going to be Marjorie Taylor Greene or whoever. How right. do you ever get out of this dynamic? Well, I, I do think that a low voter turnout or abstaining from the vote out of principle won't break that cycle. Uh, well, I agree it's important that cycle be broken. I don't think the proposed strategy, the implied strategy there from a lot of people online was necessarily effective because low voter turnout. I mean, politicians love that. They have to pander less. They can just do what they want. Yeah. Um but with with breaking that cycle, it's really, really difficult. I, so there's an inevitable cycle break, I think, and it's climate change. Um, eventually, the consequences of climate change are going to be so disastrous for the human species that we are going to face a breaking point and the traditional political order is going to stop meaning what it used to. And I'm mm -hmm. giving that about 40 years until that point, And we don't want to wait until that point. I feel like the best bet that we have, and by we, I mean like you and I, the best bet that we have is 
taking advantage of this zeitgeist, this modern discontent with capitalism and with the Democratic Party and doing everything possible to move the party in a position where the electable candidate is the progressive one, where people like Biden are treated like people like um, uh, like um, Klobuchar. Oh, sure, they're a moderate, but they're not electable. The electable one? Oh, that's AOC. Oh, that's Nina Turner. Oh, that's Ilhan Omar. It's frustrating to operate within the bounds of electoralism for situations like this because the anarchistic positions that I hold make me want to say like, oh, you know, take to the streets and workers' revolution, et cetera, et cetera. But that needs to wait until we have public support. The idea that any kind of massive popular movement is going to break this way, I just think we need to do more groundwork. But we've done more in the past uh, decade than any left-leaning movement has done in America in the past century. So I think we're building off a lot of momentum, you know? So there's a lot of stuff I want to say in response to that. First of all, to your last point there, the problem is the media largely controls that narrative about who's electable and who's not yeah. electable, and they'll just deny all the evidence in the world that even that the left is more electable, and they'll just keep asserting that it has to be the moderate. So it's like the game is rigged on that front a little bit. And in terms of your point on uh, breaking the cycle, how you don't think the Bernie or Bus people necessarily have the solution, I actually agree with you on that. But what concerns me is that a lot of people who said you know, oh, I'll hold my nose and vote for Biden, but we start fighting him on day one, they immediately turned around and became hardcore Biden apologists and started <laughs> saying, like, everything he was doing is wonderful, and they, they, they get mad are at you other people for trying to push Biden. What's that? Are you including me in that? Some people say I'm that. Which no, I'm not, I'm not including you in that. <laughs> okay, um, okay, There's a picture that, of that me That is what happened a with a lot shirt. of them, and that's very disturbing <laughs> to see. Um, and then the one other point I wanted to make, just to come back to the main question on Bernie or Bus, because I wanted to get this out there. Uh, in 2016, I actually debated Bernie or Busters, where I was taking the position that we, we would debate the lesser evil question. And I would say, look, you could agree with lesser evil voting or not, but I don't think it's debatable. Definitely Hillary Clinton is a lesser evil than Donald Trump. So I was hammering away on what I think is the empirical question. And I had those debates in 2016. Now, in 2020, if anybody wanted to have that discussion on who actually is the lesser evil, I don't think that's a difficult question. Again, I think Joe Biden is by far the lesser evil, even if you just look at whatever marginal tax rates. He's way better on that. He wouldn't have done the 2017 Trump tax cut. He wouldn't have done the deregulation to the extent that Trump did the deregulation. I go on and on with the thousand ways in which he's not as bad as Trump. But, you know, I guess the reason why I was so sympathetic to Bernie or Busters is because I do find that, like, nobody seems to have fucking standards anymore about anything. Like, nobody has moral red lines about anything. And when you see a guy who voted for the Iraq war, which killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, and this is a guy who's responsible, at least partly responsible, for the drug war, which locked up so many innocent young men and women of color, you know, and he was unapologetic about a lot of this shit. I look at that and I go, if somebody says I can't vote for that person, it's hard for me to be like, uh, you know, how dare you? I feel like I get it. Like, I get why you would take that position, even though on the lesser evil question, I think Biden is the lesser evil. You see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's very morally unsatisfying. What we want and what I want is for there to be a sense of justice in politics. The idea that you can look at a candidate and go, no, your history is repulsive. I don't care. You're not the one for me. Um, fortunately, if the other guy's worse, it's it just it seems like it's a moral question we don't have the the luxury of of meaningfully addressing maybe in a world without um 
first past the post voting. If you had ranked choice voting, if we could get third parties with some real viability, it seems yeah. like maybe that would be something we could address a little more substantively. But right now, it just feels like <laughs> it feels like the process of being in politics is just like an endless wheel of suffering um, that we just get to <laughs> hop on. And the frustrating thing, by the way, is that it's, it's only accurate. something – we have to deal with because the Republican voters get what they want. Republican voters want, with the greatest of respect to all the wonderful, insane Republican voters that I happen to know, Republican voters want some crazy shit, okay? Republican voters are fearful and anxious, and they will vote for any strong man who will tell them that the problem is Marxism and not, I don't know, what capitalism is doing to the economy, that the problem is trans people in the bathrooms rather than literally anything else. And yeah. they're going to keep getting that because in terms of the fundamental systems that move this country, I don't think Republicans pose that much of a threat to it. Not to capitalism, certainly. They certainly right. seem to be on board with maintaining that. Democrats, on the other hand, the more extreme wing of the Democratic Party wants to substantively change these systems. Bernie Sanders, yourself, me. So we get the real pushback. That's that ratchet effect. The Republican Party turns things to the right. The Democratic Party keeps things from moving back to the left. But... With all that being said, the one hope that we have fundamentally is that change in the air, is the fact that right now there is more open vocal discontent of the Democratic Party from within the Democratic Party than there has been in my entire lifetime, and I'd be willing to bet in both your lifetimes as well. Because I remember the Obama years, okay? And back then, the progressive fringe was this tiny, irrelevant minority of people that were mostly made up of anti-Iraq war, like uh, hardliners from back in the day. And they had no influence over the party. And now discourse between us and the moderates takes place every hour of every day in Washington. And that gives me a bit of hope. Maybe nothing comes of it and climate change comes and we haven't resolved the problem by then and we're screwed. That's entirely possible. I just don't know if there's any method forward that has a 100% shot. Yeah, and I think Bernie deserves a lot of credit for expanding the the, um, the possibility for critique. Because, I mean, this is just my own personal experience. Like, during the Obama era, I was at MSNBC, like, yay, Obama, <laughs> on most everything. I mean, I got things right on TVP. I did, you know, raise voices of objection occasionally. But I was much more of just a partisan cheerleader, you know, at that point. And I think it was when Bernie came along that I was like, oh, you're allowed to be in a different place than where I am. You're allowed to think like, oh, this is insufficient and there's a lot more that we could do it's here. Inspiring. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to guess that I wasn't the only one to have that experience. I'm curious, though, like, what is your assessment of how to break that media stranglehold? Because this is part of why Trump was able to be so successful, because Republicans already had been fed a steady diet for years and years of like, fuck the media, don't trust them. And so then when he came along and said that they they bought it and they didn't go along with what the Republican establishment wanted. The Democratic base, the minute that the sort of mainstream media organs settled on Joe Biden's the one, the way that the numbers flipped yeah. was astonishing it to was, see. Yeah. That was maybe the biggest revelation to me in the primary was just how much power and control those um, sort of legacy media institutions still had over the Democratic primary base. Do you see that shifting at all? Do you think that those media organs themselves can be reformed? What are your thoughts there? I think they can be exploited. Um, there's an old quote from, actually, I don't 
is it from Marx? No, I genuinely don't remember the actual person it's from. It implies violence, which I'm in no way insinuating here, but it's the capitalist shall hang us. The last capitalist shall hang, uh, shall sell us the, the rope on which he will hang or something like that. <laughs> I think that, um, media outlets are traitors to their cause and always will be. The Republicans were and the Democrats will be too if there's money in it. Right mm. now, unfortunately, the majority of the Democratic voter base is, you know how they are. And 20 years ago, the majority of the Republican voter base was neocon. Now it's not. And the media, when they saw the blood in the air, the Republican media, I mean, they swapped gears really quick on that, too. And now they make their money off of pandering. I mean, for God's sake, look, there was a whole campaign to stop watching Fox News because they had the audacity to accurately report on the results of the election because they didn't want to get sued the yeah. way that Newsmax and, and OAN were threatened with with lawsuits. And that was enough to get people to say, oh, we're done with Fox News. The zeitgeist over there shifted massively. But over here in the Democratic Party, eh, you know, some parts, I think, and this is my dream scenario, we make the Republican Party irrelevant. I mean, dead on arrival. Electoral college gone. Republican presidential candidates can never break 40% of the vote. And at that point, the America is controlled by the Democratic Party, which is bad. But you see what happened with Obama. Democratic president after Democratic president, moderate after moderate after moderate. And what gets better? What changes? Nothing, really. This country may be some incremental progress in some incredibly minute ways, but there are backslides. And every year there will be some new outrage from Democratic progressives about how they're betraying their voter base by supporting pharmaceutical industry or the military industrial complex. And the idea of a progressive alternative grows more and more attractive now that the bad cop isn't in the room, the Republican Party. And if that happens, there will be more money to be made from placating those radicals than there will be placating the moderates. And the media, no matter how loyal they are to the Democratic Party, will shift to their true loyalty, which is money. And I think that's a tendency that we can exploit if we have command over the popular will. So, um, one area where we've definitely had disagreement is on this issue of the populist right. But I do think that some of the some of the thoughts that people think I have and people think Crystal has, they're not exactly accurate. So let me be clear about my view on the populist right, and then I'll get your response. So I think that there is no populist right in terms of elected officials. I think they're all frauds. I think the one that they pointed to for the longest time as if they were serious was Josh Hawley, because Josh Hawley, every now and then, it's super rare, but every now and then he'll say something that's vaguely economically populist, like, oh, I'm for the $2,000 checks, which, by the way, he immediately flipped on as soon as Biden did the $1,400 mm -hmm. checks. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying, oh, my God, well, I'm worried about You're inflation and all much. this shit, right? So in terms of elected officials, there are zero populist right people. So it's a fraud. It's just a game. They're trying to get more voters while not delivering on any of it. But I do think they're actually populist right people in the United States of America and, and regular folks, I mean. So for example, two times Obama voters, and there were millions of these, two times Obama voters who then flipped to Trump. And the reason they gave was, hey, at least this guy said he's going to keep my job here. Now, granted, those people have other issues, like they overlook Trump's bigotry, they overlook all these terrible things. But would you not concede that the concept of populist right is real in the sense that some voters in America are that? And it's okay to make alliances only on the issues where we agree with those people. I think, um, so t two quick points to that one. Or I say quick, that's a total lie. I'm about to talk for a while. Um, <laughs> the, um, 
So first and foremost, I, I have to judge people by what they do rather than their intentions. Trump was never going to help workers in America. And really, he didn't. He brought over a couple thousand jobs back. Agreed. Now, no, he lost them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, you know, then the whole the COVID mishandling led to millions more. So, I mean, yeah, we're not. Yeah, not great there. Now, can I blame the people who voted for Trump for not seeing into the future? Not every American voter is going to be a political analyst. I feel like most people tapped into the process could have seen that Trump was anti-worker from day one, but I can't really blame your average voter for that position. That being said, when we take a look at the broader consequences of the I guess the populist right backing, I agree with you. I don't think there are any politicians that actually cater to that. Yeah. The most effective right populists in history were, of course, the Nazis, uh, who were very effective. I mean, they called themselves, for God's sake, the Workers' Party. They were very, very effective in taking the criticisms that a frustrated working class had of the um, the economy and of the country they lived in, uh, exploiting them and then directing them in a sort of nationalistic fervor against enemies of the state, um, which is if you take a look at some of the initial promises made by the Nazi party before they really took power, you see some some shit in there that they were never going to do. I mean, like all the workers' rights they were throwing in there, absolutely not. But it got people's attention. Now, that doesn't mean every populist right type is a Nazi. That would be ridiculous. But there is a longstanding history of these people taken being taken advantage of. Tucker Carlson's a great example. This is a guy who is on record saying that he is a simp for billionaires. He does not vote for like um, – edge line candidates. He votes for like the safe choice every time. He backs essentially every single standard right position that you possibly could with no allowances made for workers' rights or autonomy. Yeah, he's he a fraud. Total fraud. He's complete fraud. And yeah. he's the most popular guy on TV. So to what extent is there an authentic populist, right? I genuinely don't know. But to the extent that there is one, and I'm sure there is, because I've talked to some of these people with real concerns, yeah. I say this, we work together on solutions, not problems. Because I say, I have a problem with the corrupt media class. And to their credit, Nazis agree with me. But I think it's because they're <laughs> capitalists and Nazis think it's because they're Jews. I say, you know, I want more freedom of speech. And I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, like Trump threatening to deport people who burn the flag. And then people say like, oh yeah, I also want more freedom of speech. And they're talking about the removal of trans people from um, protected classes, you know, so they have the right to discriminate against them. I want to work together on solutions. And if we have a solution in mind, Medicare for all, unionization, I will work with anyone. I will work with anybody from any side of any aisle if they have an authentic desire to achieve something which I agree with, as long as I'm not, I don't know, giving them the, the, the crown to the monarchy or whatever, you know, like, mm. oh, hey, get me in power and we'll do unions. Like, okay, all right, sure, buddy. But yeah. I'm willing to work together on that. I'm a big, big, big fan of meaningful bipartisanship when it it's sufficiently principled, I think. Yeah. Bernie and, and Mike Lee. Bernie and Mike Lee on the on the yeah. Yemen genocide. That's the perfect example. Yeah, or um AOC and Ted Cruz. What was the thing that they got together on uh, about what a year ago? Talk, was it too. um before they was started? It, was it some anti monopoly thing? Some breaking up big companies? I think like, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that's what was it was. That it? I don't remember. But yeah, but I respect that. I respect the hell out of that. And that's why, because when you agree on a problem, there are a million solutions to any potential problem. You have no idea where people are going to go with this. You know, you have a right. problem with woke culture. Plenty of people have a problem with cancel culture. What does that mean? What are we doing? Solutions. Okay, I can get behind these. Yeah. 
Um, so, Vash, I'm told that you've said some not very nice things about <laughs> me and are not a big fan of Rising. I'll be honest with you. I haven't actually watched, so I'm going to assume everything was said in, like, good faith and substantive, etc. Um, I can't watch. Why do you assume too- that? Too much of a fragile special snowflake to um, to actually watch. But tell me, just tell me in your own words, like, what was your issue with Rising, with me, with me working with Sagar? Like, lay that out for me. Um, so I won't speak ill of Sagar because I don't want to put you in a position where you have to defend, like, a co-worker um, yeah. in front of me. Because I think that's a real <laughs> Well, game. listen, I, you know, Sagar has plenty of cringe views yeah, that she I'm happy to tell him She to, won't defend him, face, no. So go ahead. <laughs> no, okay. Well, I just, yeah, I just, I know because I've been put in that position, like, oh, you have to defend your friends, whatever. So I, I'll say this much. I've seen a lot of your solo content in the past couple of months, um, and I find it generally extremely agreeable. I think that um, – I think that you have a very specific intention when you do your work on rising that you when you work with Sagar, right? And it's to convince people fundamentally that the Democratic Party is bad. This is a noble goal, okay? It's one that I agree with. <laughs> um, and it's it's one that I think that you are very effective in delivering in many instances as well, because some of the uh, the some of the um the blatant hypocrisies of the Democratic Party, um, I feel like they can be very it can be very difficult to call them out unless you're willing to go like full hog on it. You know what I mean? Going mm. the, the full hog. You, you really go into it. And I respect the hell out of that. Sometimes I feel like these criticisms, um, they implicitly downplay the threat of the Republican Party, which mm. works sometimes as a rhetorical strategy. Because, again, the more afraid people are of the Republican Party, the more likely they are to accept anything the Democratic Party will give them. So you need to do that to an extent. But at the same time, I disagreed with the extent to which you seem to at some points. One of the big examples being the January 6th Capitol riots. You know, Now, did I think this was going to like overthrow the U.S.? No. God, no. Like the crazies invading the building, whatever. The main threat, I thought, was the normalization of the January 6th Capitol riots by basically the entire Republican Party. Like, mm. that time they normalize it, sure. Next time, maybe a couple Democratic senators take a cap through the forehead when they stand too close to an open window, you know? And then we start seeing those justifications. Eventually, we start talking about, you know, beer hall putches, which is what I'm trying to stay away from. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you misread my intention, though, a little bit. Um, And I also would say, like, I think if you watch my coverage or our coverage of January 6th, I was certainly let Sagar speak for himself, but I was certainly as like appalled and condemning as you possibly could be of that particular event. More of my intention with Rising and the work that I'm doing with Sagar um, which you you probably know, like we just did our last rising, but we have new things coming. So it's not like my partnership with Sagar is ending. Um, best of luck. Well, thank you. More of the intention is right now, I feel, and you can tell me if you think that this this is correct, that the country is splitting along sectarian lines in a way that is really, I think, very troubling and and maybe one of, in my views, the biggest um, problems that the country faces. Now, as Kyle said, in terms of like elected leaders or thought leaders in Washington who are populist, right? No, it's a it's a total fraud. But do I know from working in West Virginia and growing up in rural Virginia and living in Kentucky, living in the Rust Belt in Ohio, do I know that there are people there who have um, economic views that we could very much work with? 
who are very mistrustful of the establishments of both party, who could potentially be brought into a true, actual, multiracial, working-class coalition. Yeah, I believe in that. And so the project of rising and in working with Sagar in general is more in, in finding ways where we can actually view regular pe- have regular people view each other not as the enemy recognizing that actually your adversary is the people who are who are holding power who are keeping this status quo system in place versus like if you go on Tucker if you watch what Tucker does he's saying like you need to be afraid of your neighbor your neighbor is an existential threat. Yeah, and he does culture war bullshit and all the time. And you see a lot of that coming from plenty of, you know, mainline Democrats as well of like, these people are different. They're evil. They want to destroy. the. They're fascist. They're all racist. All of them are irredeemable. And are there racists who voted for Donald Trump? Of course. Yeah. Are there plenty of people with like bad views? Yeah, sure. But to dismiss the entire half of the country as like, those are evil, bad, irredeemable people. I think that leads the country in a very bad place. So I think maybe some of the criticism of Sagar and I that I've really reflected on and that I used to I used to kind of like object to is this idea that maybe we emphasize our commonalities too much. But as I've as I've reflected on that, that's actually intentional because we get people who have watched us truly across the entire ideological spectrum who come to us and routinely say like, you know, it's a right wing person, but they still respect me. And they they come to realize like, oh, so this person in my life who has very different politics than me, I don't, they're not the enemy. We're able to talk about politics again. We don't hate each other. We've been able to heal those relationships. So that's actually more of the intent um, of the show than just like making people think that the Democratic Party is bad, which I'm also happy to, you know, I gave Biden a lot of credit when he did the vaccine, like the patent protection and said, hey, we shouldn't do that, even though I'm waiting for follow up on that. So where they do good things, I try to give them credit. And it's really not the core of what I'm all about to convince people that the Democratic Party is like uniquely evil. Okay, I think that's a completely fair rebuttal. Um, The. the the thing you said about like don't demonize your neighbor i think is extremely important because one of the biggest problems that we have when or that i have i get cuz i t- i debate a lot of people i bring people on all the time hundreds of people at this point now i've talked to and one of the big um one of the biggest things i notice from republicans is a sense of insecurity and i don't mean that in like a haha like you're a beta male or whatever type way i mean that in a feeling that the culture is leaving them behind and they are preemptively despised by basically every institution in this country from hollywood to the mainstream news to the democratic voters which outnumber them and that if they're going to be despised they might as well stop caring about what they want anyway and Mm -hmm. i think that's a very destructive um on 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 in every way a very destructive process politically at the end of the day i mean we're all sociological agents there's nothing inherently leftist about me. If I was born to a different set of parents, I probably could have been a conservative or a moderate Democrat or a neo-Nazi or a Ku Klux Klaner. We're all very well molded by our environments. And to condemn people morally for the misfortune of having been born into circumstances which maybe led them down an ideological path I disagree with, it doesn't do anything. The condemnation is meaningless. I also so, think there's a very oh. selective uh, form of forgiveness that can exist on the left. Like, 
I'm opposed to the death penalty. I'm opposed to the mass incarceration state that we have. I think people who, you know, have served their time should be able to reenter society and have full and productive lives. I think they should be able to vote. I think they should be able to. And that's like, a, you know, I think everybody on the left would basically agree with that. But then there are other areas where if you, you know, say or do the wrong thing or hold the wrong view, it's, we're done with you. Right. There's there's no coming back. You're not allowed back in the circle. And um that's something I really disagree with. And I'll be honest with you, Vash, like, especially back during the um, the protest movement over the summer, um, it was really it was tense at times between Sagar and I. And that was probably the, the most difficult period of the show because we had both of us had very strongly held views that did not <laughs> did not line up whatsoever. And so I did some soul searching at that point of like, you know, what what am I doing? Is this sustainable? Is this good? And I guess what I really came back to is Sagar is, and you don't you don't know him personally, so you know you don't have insight to seeing this, but Sagar is as good faith an actor and as honest an actor and as good of a partner as he could possibly be. So I was like, if I can't even talk to Sagar, like we're fucked as a country. Like here he is, he agrees with me on like 70% of things and is like, trusts me and believes in my good intentions and really wants to hear me out and see my point. Like if I can't handle that debate with this person, then how can we expect anyone in the country to be able to like have a reasonable partnership or debate with anyone? Can I jump in on that? Can I interject for a sec? Just sorry, real quick. I want to hop in real quick. Yeah. Um, the reason why you felt that at that particular time is because the view that he was espousing, you thought was not within the bounds of respectable discourse. And I actually agree with you on that because his whole argument was like, yeah, bring in the army to like crack down domestically on protesters. That's deeply against the First Amendment. That's deeply authoritarian. That's you viewed that as outside of the bounds of reason and some other times when he disagrees with you you might not think it's outside the bounds of reason yeah. like mm-hmm. uh, on the issue of guns or maybe on the issue of abortion or whatever it might be yeah. you might think yeah we i don't agree with you but issues. i see it yeah <laughs> but this was one where you're like no not only do i not agree with you i don't even see your point and i think you're like actively hostile yeah so i think that's Just, why it was very difficult that, but that gets to a, the more important point is and this happens with discourse all the time where are your actual red lines where you're like, hey, if you believe this, I can't even be friends with you. You know, if somebody's pro-genocide, you're not going to be like, well, we just disagree. You know what I mean? So like there are red Mm -hmm. lines, but then there's other things that you might disagree, but they're not red lines. So I think that's why it was hard for you at that point. And and just to add to that, and then I want to hear what you have to say, Vash, is like, yeah, that that's exactly why. Mm -hmm. But then it also is the case that there's a large portion of americans who well i think his, with that was views. that's and, why you stayed what i think was like so uncomfortable about the whole situation we saw like 70 percent. there was a poll that was like 70 percent or something agree with deploying the military in u.s streets and so you were like i guess if it's 70 percent of the country i have to argue against this position basically yeah. was your point anyway no, i'm sorry boss we just no no I, I run into that all the time i am frequently disappointed with the popularity of some of the positions that people sometimes i argue against the position online and i think nobody actually believes this i'm wasting my time this is some Tell the scandal. Bullshit. talk about the scandal and, that just happened no, no, no. Wait, hold on. Maybe in a oh. second. Okay, hold on. I, uh. we, just put, we just put poured water on that fire. Uh, so, okay, so a couple things. First of all, um, again, I, I don't I don't like arguing against people who aren't here, so I'll just say I cordially invite Sagar to an arm wrestle anytime. We, happen to keep it. That's, we, we can keep it to that. You know, it's good. I've been, I've been working out lately. I think I can do it. You know, I'm feeling strong. Um, He's been the, hitting the Peloton well, hard during quarantine. I don't know, Vosh. 
All right. Hey, you know what? I invite the challenge. Um, <sighs> one of the issues I have, because this is kind of the problem I have with right populism, it feels like. It feels like every discussion I have with a right populist is like we agree for 40 minutes. Yeah, the establishment is bad. Workers in this country are being oppressed. Yeah, the media is like a, a like a, an oligarchy that's being used to distract people from meaningful issues. And then they get caught on some culture war talking point and instantly swap into fascism, like in a nanosecond. Like – I can spend all this time agreeing with them at a point, and then it'll be like, oh, yeah, but Black Lives Matter is burning cities down, so we have to revoke citizenship and deport people and use, like, Secret Service black bags to take protesters away and interrogate them to find out which anarchist cells are ruling there. These are – so, again, we're not talking – I've had convos with people like this. Yeah. But it's a thing I've noticed, too. Same with trans issues, too. People will agree on, like – Everything like, yeah, you know, I think workers need more rights. I think the Republican Party has gone crazy. I think, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, trans women using the same bathroom as my daughter. I don't know. So I'm going to abandon every other position I've just spent the past 40 minutes agreeing with you on and vote Republican because I'm that in favor of whatever meaningless virtue signal anti-civil rights bills they're going to pass that'll last three years before they get overturned and the whole country moves on from this. And that's a, a pattern that I've noticed. And it. I don't know how much being anti-establishment means if you're willing to drop all of it, right. it over a culture war issue. Because so like, let me, let me ask oh, you this, sorry. Bosh. Do yeah. you see do you see the populist right as sort of a unique threat, or do you put them in the same bucket as like neocons and you know these like David Frum, like George W. Bush apologists and the mainline Democrats who are just basically shilling for capital? Like, do you see them? as sort of a unique threat on the horizon, since you, you made the point of like linking back to, oh, the most successful ones were Nazis. Um, is that an accurate reflection of your views? Yeah, they, they are a unique threat, at least to my values, like, you know, for what I respect, uh, because nobody can make convincing arguments for establishment politics in the mainstream discourse anymore. Every year, every minute of every day, more people are pulled to a fringe position. It's just the world we live in right now. The right or the left, somewhere someone gets pulled to the fringe every minute probably quite a few per minute. And the whole, there's something I say, it's called the Nazbol vortex. And it's kind of a tongue in cheek term that a lot of other people use now. So I guess it's caught on. I don't like that. But the idea is that I'm very worried that as the fact that workers in this country are being exploited becomes more and more obvious to people, people are going to start wondering, what can we do about this? And there will be a group of people who will say the following. They will say, you can have your workers paradise. You can have a welfare state, you can have social security, you can have all of it. The only thing you need to do is drop the woke bullshit, which in practice means stop advocating Black Lives Matter, stop advocating for trans rights, stop advocating for this and for that. And the problem with that is that I've noticed that's a very compelling argument to a lot of people, even minorities. I've seen gay, trans, black, whatever people drop progressive positions because they thought advocacy for those positions was impeding workers' rights. And that is – now, historically, you can take a look at that proposition and say this is a flat-out lie. The most mm -hmm. successful workers' rights orgs have always been a multiracial alliance of people advocating for the cutting edge of civil rights at their time. That's always been the case for yeah. a number of reasons. But it's a compelling line. And populist right types, whether they sincerely believe in it, as some people I've talked to do, or don't, like Tucker Carlson, are really good at selling that line. I mean, Tucker Carlson says something to that effect all the time, doesn't he? You know, the elites are controlling this country, and how do they do it? Through cheap labor they get through immigration. So all we have to do is close the borders, et cetera, et cetera. He recently said, for God's sake, he said that the um, 
what was it, the 1964 immigration bill, the Hart-Seller Act, that that was like the greatest threat to American values. Uh, most listened to television broadcaster said the immigration bill that led to non-whites being allowed into this country in a greater number, that was the greatest threat our country has ever faced to our values. That's mainstream now. Hmm, and yeah. that is going to get more popular with time. That's what I'm afraid of. So, okay, there's a bunch of things to say in response to that. Again, I right. would say Tucker's, Tucker's not a populist. So he's a fraud. Po- he's a fake. He's just a oh, j- standard a Republican. So I have nothing but disdain for Tucker. And anybody who's, again, at the national level, a politician who does the populist tap dance, but doesn't actually, like Josh Hawley pretended to be a populist. He was against the $15 minimum wage. Don't tell me you're a fucking populist. We don't support a $15 minimum wage. It's yeah. the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right so again, yeah. but I think there's a difference between fraud populists and somebody who actually was a two times Obama voter who flipped to Trump and they say, hey, it's because I wanted to keep my job or somebody like Sager, who might be genuine in saying, I want a $15 minimum wage, or I want more unionization, or I want whatever. And you mentioned wokeness there for a second. See, I make a distinction, Vosh, between the left position on social issues, which I down the line pretty much agree with. So, you know, you talk about trans rights, 100% pro-trans rights, use whatever bathroom you want to use, all that stuff. And if you go social issue for social issue, I bet you and I are 95 to 100 percent in agreement on those things but i don't that's not wokeness well i think wokeness is a pejorative term because the wokeness to sum it up is like when the left starts using authoritarian tactics so they want to like silence people or deplatform people or or what have you and i am against that i am against wokeness i am against like shutting people down if they say something that's rude or bad or even bigoted because i think we should believe in free speech as a principle so tell me the different do you agree that there's a distinction there between wokeness and being left on social issues because it seems like you conflated the two things there no i just want to say i think there's a difference well i mean it's all a language game right for me i spend a ton of time arguing with the left i think there are plenty of ways in which the progressive left irresponsibly advocates for progressive positions but the right does not make a distinction between these things when you hear like woke nonsense from right yeah yeah that's what they mean right 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 right. they mean anything progressive they mean black lives matter they mean trans rights if you go back far enough i guarantee you these people would start advocating for gay marriage to be revoked well actually that's the official position of every single state republican party revoke gay marriage that's still in every single one of their um proposed like ideas and charters that's what they mean by woke nonsense and against that we have to form a united front i think that criticisms of um of irresponsible behavior on the left is an intra-leftist discourse, yes. something we have to discuss amongst ourselves. But if we let them co-opt those criticisms, pretty soon I'll say, like, I don't like this woke nonsense, I don't like cancel culture, and somebody to my left will agree, and, or sorry, somebody next to me will say, oh, I completely agree. I hate that we have to call trans women she, her, or whatever. Right, Which, okay. right. I see your point. I got mm-hmm. you. Yeah, yeah, so I, got I apologize for, for, for my misspeaking there. No, and when I was okay. talking about sincere versus fake populist as well, gotcha. to me, I agree there's a difference. It's just like if the rhetoric overlaps, at the end of the day, the consequences are the same regardless of how sincere um, their advocacy for it is, which is super frustrating because like – I mean you say Tucker Carlson's a fraud. I think it's really obvious. But a lot of people think that guy is like the – They do. They do. I'm sorry, Crystal. I was just going to get your thoughts, Vosh, on the the kind of other – 
We're talking about it from the right perspective where they'll say, yeah, this woke nonsense, and they'll mean the content as well. Whereas my issue is oftentimes um, liberals or, you know, the CIA video thing that I know you and Kyle are going back and forth over, like, these institutions will cloak themselves in the language of wokeness without having any of the content. So it's exactly the opposite of the right is against the language and they're against the content. Then you'll have these institutions of power that'll embrace the language and strip it of all of its content and use it to, to virtue say and convince you they're they're truly, they're good people, they're on your side, they're progressive, et cetera, et cetera. That to me is also extremely dangerous. Yeah, they're, they're, they're tap dancing. And oh my God, that's CIA ad. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, we all know what the CIA does, what they've done. For civil rights abroad, okay? The idea that this organization could get away with passing itself off as some sort of woke, you know, we have an immigrant mother of whatever, you know, we have this person who works here is disgusting. Generalized anxiety disorder who hates <laughs> yeah, the patriarchy. I'm a cisgender millennial. Fucking kill me, man. Oh, God. It's like they knew they were shitting in my cornflakes when they – but <laughs> so – but so corporations and big institutions will always cynically use like – identity politics to push whatever brand they're doing you know when gillette did that like masculinity commercial when nike did all their black lives matter advocacy their work with colin kaepernick when all these corps we know why Jamie they do it they Diamond do it kneeling in front of a bank vault oh, yes they, that was one of my favorite makes examples money and right now more people agree with those positions than the opposite or at the very least the discourse generated by the controversy leads to a lot of sales so it's something they're going to do to make money no matter what. But this has always happened. What about all those no Irish need apply signs? What about all those horrible signs people used to post out their stores saying, you know, we don't provide service to Jews and, you know, black people? That was the exact same thing. Admittedly, they didn't have mass media, you know, to promote that message through. But I guarantee you that if we had the Internet and mass media in 1930s, you would see corporations virtue signaling that they're not on the side of the suffragettes or whatever. It will they will always cater to the public popular opinion to make money. And we have to criticize them for that. But we cannot let people on the right get away with acting like this is some sort of sincere advocacy for these positions. Right. When a corporation puts up a BLM advert, that is n- this is not an indication of institutional power backing BLM, okay? No more so than like uh, a porn site having tits on its main page is institutional support for women. It's a way of using the aesthetic in order to garner clicks and that's it and you can criticize that and that's fine but we can you, you have to criticize it without criticizing the content that they're trying to cynically you know right devo- but i think i think my critique goes a little bit further which is that um sometimes on on the left the language itself is like it's used in a way where if you're not using the right lingo and not using the right language, it, even if you do actually agree with at least some of the content or could be moved on the content, there's a sense of disdain or there's the t- attempt to censor to you know push people out who aren't using the right language. And to me, it can make the whole project feel very insular very sort of condescending yeah. uh, again, it- even with people who who may be able to be moved to all of the content or maybe mostly there on the content, but still are pushed aside like, oh, you don't get it. You're not with us. You're not using the right lingo. That's the other part that. So I see some of the the more insular language as being off putting for the project of sort of building a larger um, coalition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
it's almost unworkable. It's worse online. Um, it's better in real life, like, you know, with, with IRL advocacy orgs, but it's a real problem. Yeah. It's the left circular firing squad, right? Um, the problem is the right is so good at falling in line, you know, uh, the whole Republican establishment fell in line to lap at Trump's feet the moment he won. Even the people, he, I mean, he attacked Ted Cruz's wife. There were people who said he was like a plague in the Republican Party. They all fell in line, every one yep. of them. I don't know what it is about them, but they sure do like being lapdogs. On the left, our independent and free spirits lead to us being a bunch of infighting cats 90% of the time. <laughs> and I agree with your, I, I, I agree too, because I think there are a lot of ways, a lot of rhetorical methods by which you can advocate for a good position. That's what I tried to do when I started this channel, because I know the way I talk well, it's not the way that a lot of people on the left talk online. You know, at least I'm trying to touch on a different element, a different aesthetic there. But people attack me for that sometimes, even when they agree with the content of my speech. It's incredibly frustrating, and I, I can only say that I agree with that. It's a real problem. I'm hoping – it seems like the left drops this in times of excitement, like yeah. around election years or when there's a really, really big – like um, when the George Floyd um, protests start, like right after his murder, I feel like for a couple of – weeks, there was almost no infighting on the left. Everybody agreed what happened was wrong and it's time for a discussion. Well, Andrew Yang on BDS too, that united everybody, or Andrew Yang on yeah. Israel. Everybody was like, fuck you. Well, I actually thought in general Thank you, Yang. on Israel and Gaza, yeah. there was a lot of, we all came, everybody came together. Yeah. Everybody yeah. came together. That was nice of you. I really appreciate Yang doing that, you know? And hey, <laughs> that's how I felt with the Palestinian fundraiser. There were a couple of lunatics who said like, uh, oh, you're donating to Hamas. And I still invite <laughs> anyone who believes that to provide evidence of it because I was very careful when choosing my donations. But um, for the most part, people, you know, got together on that. Even people who I saw, like they disliked me online. They said, you know, okay, this is a good thing. That's really sweet. We all have a capacity to work together towards goals we believe in, whether these people are on the left or on the right. And I think that's a muscle that we all need to exercise, our ability to work across the aisle, as not in some Biden way, by the way, you know, like, mm. oh, let's defer to the Republicans, but towards a genuine shared goal. Or like, so, oh, let's work together for another war or tax so, cut or whatever. Vaj, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I want to tell – Crystal doesn't know the thing that was just a scandal that you were involved in. I want to tell her I, to get her I live reaction. I a little bit of a whiff okay. of it, but I want the no, full breakdown. You, okay. Yeah. Uh, here's, the, here's the bottom line. I'm, I'm not a Vaj, very online person is the Vaj, truth of the matter. Yeah. He, uh, let me get my bottom line said, after your bottom line. Good luck. I'm, I'm yeah. going to sum it up, and then Vaj, you could tell me if I'm wrong in any part of it. But the gist of it is Vaj basically said, hey, don't have kink at pride okay. so in other words don't like you know have a big ass dildo thing said, like, or make whatever it family friendly yeah basically. make it make pride family friendly and for that he was totally dragged because people were like you can't police you know the I lgbtq mean, community by, by if, the way he's known, pansexual he's pansexual he's if, part of the lgbtq community if i had community. known that that was your problematic view there's no way i would have invited you on today so <laughs> you, you, you just you just barely Th skated by with that thanks one. for keeping it covert kyle you know i know it's okay wait i want to oh god i just poured water okay i just poured water on this i just want to say okay <sighs> 
the initial live stream where I talked about this, I got super angry at some people in chat were being really, really dumb. So I probably did a bad job initially conveying the point. But my general argument is like, okay, pride isn't a riot anymore in most parts of America. There are lots of big cities where it's actually like a well-incorporated, well-planned big event that lots of people can attend. And I think it'd be nice if like maybe the main event or like a big portion of it, like a big segment was family friendly. Because I know, because I have a lot of kids in my audience, there were a lot of young like gay or trans people who don't have any gay or trans friends, any connections, any knowledge, any info, any contacts, whatever, and they want to go to Pride, but they can't really because their parents won't want to go because there's this stigma of it being like overtly sexual with people running around with like those or gimp suits or whatever. And I said, I think it's just like have like a big part of Pride. Just be family friendly. Like, I don't mean you can't walk around shirtless or whatever, like like it's a beach or I just mean like just like just chill it for like one part of it, you know? And the problem is a lot of people interpreted this as me trying to like destroy the legacy of kink and its integration at Pride, which I have no problem, by the way, with people being kinky as shit at Pride. I just want there to be like a good part of it where kids <laughs> can just go and it's not controversial and it's <sighs> the discourse lasted for days. I yeah. lost thousands of subs. Oh, was, I'm Voss, surprised just, by that last part. I'm surprised you're you lost a bigot and leave. Voss. I mean, honestly. <laughs> I mean, to, for, let me let me play devil's advocate for a second. I think the argument they would make, but I actually, it's hard for me to play devil's advocate because I agreed with what your rebuttal was. But they would argue like, who are you to tell these consenting people that they can't be free adults in the context of this parade? And I, your rebuttal was basically something along the lines of like, other people are not consenting for you to, you know, whatever. Show everybody your dick or your balls or your pussy or or whatever. Run around with a dildo on your head. Like all the so fine kinky people watching. One of the first things you learn about kink is that everyone involved should consent, even if it's right. a public like if it's a public event, everyone involved should consent because maybe you don't want to see somebody running around jacking off or whatever. This yeah. is fairly standard stuff. Now people aren't running around jacking off at Pride. Now st- now to to steel man the the opposition's position. Yeah, I think a lot of people on the left get very sensitive when they hear criticisms of the LGBT. LGBTQ community that overlap with conservative criticisms. So when I said, I feel like some portion should be family friendly, in their minds, family friendly means like straight, like don't Mm -hmm. act gay, keep it in line, homos, you know? And to be fair, conservatives, like conservative moms that I knew growing up would use family friendly as a synonym for keep that gay shit away from my child. So you're the worst interpretation of my statement. And then they think I'm like operating from within the queer community to try to like make it all like straight and sanitized. And Mm. I'll say this last thing I'll say, I get their frustration and I get their reflexive defensiveness, but Oh my God, did that discourse get crazy quick? And I There's no charitability. No, boss. I mean, yeah, that's the thing that drives me crazy is that you've been doing very clear, really good left wing content (laughs) for a long time, and there was zero credibility. They treated you like you're fucking Ted Haggard or some shit. Uh, You're some hardcore right wing preacher who said it. It's like, no, look at the context of this shit. I just have a hard time in that. Like, you said you lost thousands of subscribers. Were you just making a joke, or is that true? Oh, that's true. Oh, see, that's just crazy. Like, uh, they love your work all. And then you, I mean, and then to just not cut you any slack yeah. of like, eh, you know, I think he's operating in good faith. I, I just I'll, can't understand that. I'll win him back with the Crystal Kyle um, good faith discourse is what I'll try to do. There you go. I, there you go. All, 
There was there were ways I could have improved my language, but you are right. The lack of charitability is a real problem. It affects pretty much every element of this. Um, it's almost impossible to get people on the left to w- work behind like a big political movement because yep. there's always going to be some fracturing or, 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 or splintering over some perceived problematic elements within that. And God, yeah. the right never does that, man. The right man, the right backed Roy Moore after they found that he was a pedo. Like the yeah. right will just, the right <laughs> yep. will just charge forward. With with yep. no care yeah. at all, which I mean, I'm not saying we should back people who are pedos. I'm just saying right. that <laughs> we could maybe be a little bit more amicable to working with people we disagree with. Totally. And, yes. you know, I we I just saw this morning, you know, there were two prominent left wing figures. I won't name names now, but people could probably piece it together Two like relatively oh. prominent left wing figures going right at each other's yeah. jugulars. You know, you're owned by this. You're bought by that. You're <sighs> and neither one of them oh, is bought. I, and I look at it. And it drives me fucking soul. crazy. I could tell you off air who it was, but I'm not going to tell you now. Anyway, okay, so, so um, I have one more question. This is one more area where we disagree. I'm curious to see you lay out your thoughts on it. I actually was a supporter of force the vote. Put Jimmy mm-hmm. Dore aside, the idea of forcing a vote on Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic strikes me as intuitively intelligent. Tell me why I'm wrong. Why would I need to? You already said put aside Jimmy Dore. <laughs> my my pro. Okay, my pro. So. Do I think the force the vote strategy would work? Not really. Maybe is it worth some discussion? Maybe, yeah. I don't know. It seems like an interesting idea. My issue was the people, and there it wasn't just Jimmy. There were a lot of others who used the force the vote as some kind of litmus test for whether you're a real progressive. And then they played up this big show as everyone who didn't go along with their plans was some sort of traitor. Like, I mean, so I say I'm not going to shit talk people who aren't here. I'll shit talk Jimmy though any day. So like this, here, here's what the guy did, okay? Not only did he do this force the vote thing, he then started a panel and a conference where he invited AOC performatively, knowing she wouldn't show up, condemned her for not showing up, saying she was ignoring the will of the people by not showing up to his show to make him money, and then said anyone who didn't support force the vote was a fraud and a traitor to the Democratic Party, held a conference that went past the last day they could have forced the vote. It was never about force the vote. It was about trying to pull off disaffected progressive Democrats and add them to Jimmy's community. And there were other people who tried that too. For these people, I have no respect. They are doing the exact thing that we all just condemned here, which is the fragmentation, the splintering. But at least when crazy leftists on Twitter fragment and splinter, they do it because they have a sincere belief in what, they, in what they're advocating for. There's a disagreement that they can't get over because, I don't know, they're sensitive or whatever. But that was pure cynical garbage, and I have no respect for it. The okay. strategy itself, defensible. And maybe in a better context or environment, maybe I would have supported it too. So, so let me let me break this down in response. Um, one of the criticisms I had of force the vote is that yes, it was the case that if people didn't immediately agree, they were accused of being sellouts. Corrupt. They were accused of being corrupt. And I was very, if any segment I did on force the vote, I was very clear up front that there's no reason to malign somebody's intentions if you don't have a reason to malign somebody's intentions. So like Noam Chomsky was against force the vote. Does that mean Noam Chomsky is some sort of, you know, evil sellout villain? They, who's twisting say that. His evil mustache? they do say that. Yeah, they do. So, so anyway, my point is on Stop. that point, I totally agree. And I don't question the intentions and the motives of well-meaning people who just didn't agree with the strategy, for sure. Um, but there was the, this other problem that every time you bring up the issue itself, the conversation always goes immediately back to, isn't Jimmy, Jimmy Dore an asshole? Isn't he so abrasive? Doesn't he have all these problems? And 
even if I grant you all that, the idea on its merits, when you hear the arguments fleshed out, it makes perfect sense. I mean, for example, when it comes to women's suffrage, it failed in the House of Representatives in 1915. It failed as an amendment in 1918. It failed again as an amendment in 1919. And then in 1920, we got women's suffrage. So like something losing is not necessarily a setback. If anything, what you can do is fire everybody up when they see that our fucking corrupt representatives just voted against universal health care in the middle of a pandemic. And I think what was so frustrating to Jimmy is that he thinks he's doing this thing, which is super noble, and he's lighting the spark that's going to set the fire, that's really going to take it to the establishment and get us health care. And then for like half or more than half of the left to turn around and be like, eh, fuck off because you're Jimmy. I could see why he was upset by it. My uh, my lawyers are informing me not to say anything more about Jimmy Dore, so I'll, <laughs> I'll set it there. I'll say this, though. like I think you can give a 50-50 on the arguments. On one hand, you can rile people up by doing this performative – because, of course, it's performative. It's not going to actually go through. So, But you can rile people up like optically with that move. Um, the counterargument, I guess, would be the idea that it would make progressives look bad to like – visibly block a part of the democratic process. Now, in actuality, are they blocking it? No, not really. But optically, could it be played that way? Yes, yeah. by the uh, by the media to play up that process. And um, and maybe like the media would go like, oh, progressives wasting everyone's time. You lost the election, buddy. Come on. Maybe it could go either way. You know, there are optical wins and failures potential. One of the frustrations I had is when I talked to force the vote types, they wouldn't even acknowledge the potential downsides. I guess I just get really frustrated when it feels like I'm having an argument with a demagogue. If a person can say like, hey, I recognize the downsides of this and the upsides, all that considered, I disagree with your assessment and I would go with like the upsides. I think it's going to work out. I respect the hell out of that. I, I, I feel like if that was the discourse, that would have been great. If the discourse was you, Kyle, that would have been great. But the it was so dominated by bad faith actors. And maybe that's like the problem, right? Maybe that's what happened with me just yesterday as well. It can be almost impossible to have a good faith conversation with a bad faith one playing in the background because it's really easy to just let that attitude corrupt the way you're handling the discourse. Yeah, it's really I mean, tough. I don't know. I, I really, I really don't think that that I think they genuinely meant it and wanted it. And then they got very defensive the second there was any opposition. And listen, you have to, you have to be willing to hear the opposition and explain why you're right. And the opposition is wrong. So on that front, I, they didn't do well on, and on the fact that they called everybody and their mother a sellout, they didn't do well, but the core of it and the heart of it, I think they meant well. And I think they really wanted to get people healthcare. And I, listen, I don't think it looks bad I mean, the media is going to shit on us no matter what. Like, I'll grant you that. No matter what, the media is always going to shit on the left. That's what they do. But, like, I don't think it looks bad to push for civil rights in 1960. I don't think it looks bad to push for universal health care in 2021 if we don't get it until, let's say, 2027 or whatever it might be. So, I mean, my I always fall back on the MLK quote, the time is always right to do what's right. So I will take a vote on any of my priorities at any point in time. And then even if I know I'm going to lose, use that to try to get a spark, to get bodies in the streets, to try to get people to rally to our agenda. Because... I think that that, uh, you know, you mentioned it earlier. I forgot the phrase that you used, but you said something like the raw aggression of the right or whatever. Like, yeah, that's how, why they win on a lot of the things they do, because they just dominate the conversation and bulldoze everybody in their sight. Mm -hmm. And then eventually people are like, all right, I get it. Fucking we'll do the thing that you want to do. I'm sorry, Chris. Long. Well, I was just going to add to that, which is that, you know, it's all counter. We, we don't know what the alternate history would be, but it's been very easy to allow healthcare to fall off the agenda entirely. Yeah, I no, mean, we're not even talking about public option anymore. Public it's option gone. is not in budgets uh, in Biden's budget. Um, even the prescription drug thing gone. 
lowering the Medicare age. Progressives are like writing another strongly worded letter or something (laughs) about it. But, you know, you can easily imagine where if there had been heat put around this issue during a pandemic, that at least would have forced them to have to consider a public op, consider doing something. Scare them. Fucking scare them. Scare the elected representatives. Oh, my God, there's these crazy people in the streets. Yeah. No, I completely accept the potential validity of the argument. I, I, I do think there's a potential for optical backlash, but there is absolutely no way for me to make a real informed decision on which um, the, the, whether the upside or the downside is potentially more significant or more yeah. likely. Right. Um, I genuinely don't know. My, my concern was largely with the broader discourse. And to the broader point, by the way, since the forced to vote thing is done and gone, I'll yeah. say this. I want progressives to be extremely aggressive in advocating for this from this point forward. I think the American public is – and this is only going to be more the case with time too. I think the general public is very amenable to – pushing for beyond what Biden is advocating for right now. Um, I think a lot of Republicans are going to back pretty much. I think Republicans are actually in many cases willing to cede some credibility to progressive criticisms of Biden because they see Biden as the bigger threat. And I think that Democratic voters are probably easy to remind of the the little treachery we got with the public option. As time goes on, I think we need to be more and more aggressive. And I just hope that we can channel that aggression in ways that doesn't cause a bunch of meaningless infighting on the left, you know? Let me ask you this, Vash. You mentioned early on that you wanted to use your um, platform and do more organizing in real life. Um, what do you see if we were going to like organize around one Biden era priority? What is sort of top of your list? Is it Medicare for all or public option? Is it the PRO Act? What do you think would be the most transformative thing that's in with, within the realm of possibility here? Oh, God, that's a really tough to just nail it down to one. If it's just one momentum has to mean at the very least a public option um, that like because that seems like a fairly realistic, like an obvious hypocrisy to call them on in terms of stuff that I'd love to see, though, like really hard points that we need to hit on. We can't forget about Gaza just because there was a ceasefire. We cannot mm-hmm. let that go and yeah. under no circumstances. The, the, the attack of the Associated Press and Al Jazeera building and then oh. Israel going, oh, yeah, dude, we told Biden that <laughs> we told Biden there is Hamas there. It's OK. Smoking and gun. Then, yeah, and then the 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 Secretary of State came out and said, uh, "We didn't we didn't say anything." Uh, Biden and Biden admitting that he went soft on Netanyahu. Like, uh, like we cannot let this go. We can't let that go. The public option's an easy get. I mean, obviously Medicare for all as well, but at the very least a public option. And I also think we need to talk way more about electoral reform. The interstate national compact or whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah. That is getting closer and closer to being politically relevant. And, and it's, that's popular vote, just so everybody knows that the idea behind that is then the popular vote will determine the presidency. Yeah, and the constitutionality of that is probably something we're going to see a ruling on sometime in the next four years from the current court, which is not encouraging, but we'll see how that goes. Um, God, immigration reform is a huge one. We can't forget about the border, all the undocumented kids that are coming up in the systems, the infrastructure bill. I feel like we have so many ways to attack Biden here. We just have to keep our eye on all of them. And we can't let up. And the progressives in Congress can't let up either. Not to say they have to destroy their credibility by like any time they exhale, they have to mutter a, a, a curse upon Biden's family. But they need to be aggressive. They need to so, work with us. 
So, Vaj, my last question for you is a little weird, but and you could take some time to think about it if you need it. But tell me your most unpopular opinion, mm. or let me rephrase that. Maybe even tell me your your most conservative opinion. Hmm. Oh God! All right, give me a sec. Yeah, okay. My most conservative opinion. Let me think. I'll while you think about it, I'll answer just so you know, like. You won't be yeah, the only person please. showing your whole ass on this show right now. So, I mean, I, there's a bunch of stuff I could I could talk about. Um, I'm actually, when it comes to the nature versus nurture issue, most lefties tend to agree that nurture is the more dominant thing and more important. I actually disagree. I think nature is more important. So that alone is sort of a politically incorrect uh, view to have. I'm pretty moderate on the issue of guns. I'm pretty moderate on the issue of abortion. There's a bunch of things that I'm like... Middle ground on kind of, mm-hmm. you know, so go ahead. Now you got to embarrass My yourself. My most too. controversial <laughs> position is I don't think there should be can't get pride. Now your turn. <laughs> he was going to say that. He was going to say yeah. it. Careful. That's a, that's a hot button topic on social we media. We just lost 5,000 subscribers. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle. God. Um, okay. The cop out answer is that the conservative position that people tend to shit on me in the left from is the think the, the fact that I believe that um, market economies can be, um, even in the long run, a beneficial component of human civilization in an ethical way. But that's such a cop out answer because that precludes you being an anarchist, which like nobody is. So I feel like the most conservative answer that I actually have is that while we shouldn't shame anyone for it, for not it fit fitting within this purview, we have to recognize just like statistically and sociologically that there are overwhelming benefits to the raising of a child in a two parent household. I don't care if those parents are gay or straight or I do not care adopted, whatever. Um, and I don't agree with shaming like single mothers. Cause I think that's really fucked up and single yeah. mothers work harder than any other people I know. However, we should recognize that for for the good of the kids, if nobody else, it's probably important that more than one person be responsible for raising them. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. That's, There's that's a yeah, good one. yeah. There's two others that you could have said. I know you have a an orthodox take on rent control, which is probably not popular among the left. And I know you also have. A, I like the way Kyle's take, like bringing no, up I know. your shit for I, you. Look, I I watch <laughs> his stuff. I know. And then the other one is, uh, lost. is let's trade. get a couple. On trade, you know, you're not as protectionist as I am or Crystal is, right? So you're oh, a little yeah, more I'm, of a free trader. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of like what I guess most people would call globalism. Yeah, I think that since America is a democracy, a flawed one, but still a democracy, unlike say China, that we have a moral responsibility to have a significant influence on global trade because if we don't, countries like China and Russia will, which are more autocratic, meaning that we'll be essentially ceding power to autocrats, which I think is morally wrong. So I think the best thing that we can really do is use like multinational trade agreements to try to force developing countries like higher up. Um, to try to give them like workers rights or at the very least say we won't barter with your country unless you give your workers et cetera rights or whatever. Some do people you just think we've uh, used our trade. Like, do you think the trade agreements that have actually passed have done that? God, no, no, not even slightly. <laughs> yeah, he's not <laughs> crazy. I said okay. controversial, I not say. insane. <laughs> I think, but in principle, like if we had a strong left-leaning leadership and we were like, okay, we've got a huge GDP. We're going to try to use it for good. We're not trading with your country unless you sign by this UN-like backed list of workers' rights that you have to hold to. If we go to your factories and we find out that people aren't being paid X, they're not being given bathroom breaks, et cetera, et cetera, that we're not dealing with your country, every country in the world 
world will bend over backwards to make sure they can continue trading with the U.S. That okay. would be a good use of our economic power, I think. Okay, I can see that. But you're not going to go to Ohio and be like, NAFTA was actually great, guys. <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. No, it was amazing. Well, I wouldn't go to Ohio and say that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Vash, thank you. It's been so fun talking to you. We really appreciate you talking, the, taking the time, and um, yeah, yeah, really enjoyed it. Plug your stuff for everybody so they know where to find you. <laughs> I'm Vash uh, everywhere, and that's V A U S H. Many scholars disagree on the spelling, but that's <laughs> uh, I, I'm told that's actually the appropriate one. I really, uh, I really appreciate the both of you coming on um though i am not as illustrious as the two of you i'd be more than happy to have you on <laughs> my stream at any points in the future and it's just been a delight to finally get to speak to you both um really fascinating conversation i enjoyed that a lot and i think one of the things that i took away from our going back on some of the areas of disagreement is that Sometimes it's not so much even that you disagree with the person. It's that they have certain sensitivities that you don't have. Like, he's very sensitive to this idea of, like, the populist right is fraudulent. And they use this terminology of, like, woke is bad to dismiss every progressive social outcome. Whereas my sensitivity tends to be more like, oh, these institutions of power co-opt this language mm -hmm. when they don't have. And they just use it to, like, cloak themselves in the mantra of yeah. being good people. And that's, like, more where my concerns are. So that was one of the things that maybe it's an obvious point, but was kind of a revelation to me. And I wonder how often, like our different sensitivities on issues, even with him and the comments he made about pride and kink and how that was really upsetting to a lot of people, where if you're assuming everybody has bad intentions, you end up in a place of just writing them off altogether when, in fact, you actually pretty much agree. Yeah, I mean, so probably the biggest disagreement he's had with us over time, it it does go back to like populist right stuff. Mm -hmm. Who 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 are you going to work with and why? Right. Mm -hmm. And I always tried to make clear whenever I discuss that issue that I mean only in the areas where we actually agree. Yeah. So in other words, if you find somebody who actually is for the two thousand dollar checks, I'll work with them on the two thousand dollar checks. I don't care that they supported the Afghanistan war. I mean, I do care. But I care in this context, yeah. in this context, I don't care because you're for the thing that I'm in favor of $15 minimum wage, same thing, unionization, same thing, whatever it might be. So I always try to be clear, like when I say I'm working with this person, it is narrow and limited to the areas only where I agree. And then on the areas where I disagree, not only will I fight them, I'll probably fight them harder than anybody else. Right. And I think his fear and why he critiqued my take on that is this idea that, yeah, but if you work with them on that stuff then you're sort of normalizing the other stuff. I think that's the argument he would make, that mm -hmm. you're saying this person is within the realm of respectable discourse. And so, therefore, whether or not you want to, it's unintentional or whatever, but you're sort of legitimizing the other opinions. Now, again, I disagree with that. I don't think, I don't agree with that. Yeah. But I think that's where he's coming from and mm -hmm. why he's always, like, hesitant to admit, like you said, he was stressing the point that the populist right are frauds. I totally agree. But my take is that they're fraudulent only... When it's the elected officials. I think there are plenty of voters, and you've met many of them, probably more than anybody else. Plenty of voters, and, and they have zero representation. Zero, yeah. They're, they're mean, like union guys who are all for left-wing economic positions, but then they're also super socially conservative. And when I say socially conservative, I mean pro-gun, anti-abortion, probably anti-immigration, and a bunch yeah, of stuff. And are going to say some shit that is going to not, you know, not meet yeah, muster. But, <laughs> but that's it. Like, he does too, and I do too. Like, yeah. we, we're yes. people like that too, in just, a sense. And, and I guess my view is just like... The same lens of 
belief in redemption and forgiveness and bringing people along that we bring to other spaces, I think we should bring to to this discourse as well. He also made a comment that I, I wanted to dig in a little more on, but then the conversation went in another direction. He was talking about how um, our current system, what it's doing, it's constantly radicalizing people that like every day there's someone who's becoming radicalized, whether it's on the right or the left, and that that's part of why he sees the populist right as kind of a unique threat. And it's interesting because in the context of rising and my work in the past and moving forward with Sagar, I've had the exact opposite experience of the fact that I'm even sitting there at the table with someone who's nominally on the right and engaging with that person in, you know, what I try my best to be an honest and good faith way has actually de-radicalized people and brought them to a place where they can, again, start having conversations with people in their lives that they weren't able to talk to about politics again, that they have a model of like, oh, there actually are places where we might be speaking the language, same language. We might actually have even the same solutions. We might have the same views of these things. So my experience in working with someone on, you know, on the populist right um, who I consider to be a, a good faith actor and everything in my experience with him would, would suggest that he really is trying to figure these out, things out as best he can, um, has been the exact opposite of pushing people to the fringe. Well, I think he would argue, no, you're actually radicalizing people in a left-wing direction. So I, I think that was his point. It's either people are going to be radicalized in a right-wing direction going down the Tucker Carlson populist right pipeline, yeah. or they're going to be radicalized in a left-wing direction, whether it's... I, I guess what I would say is I definitely haven't had a single experience of someone starting to consume rising content and being radicalized in a right-wing direction. Definitely well, had people have I mean, moved to the left, but I've definitely, I've never at least been informed, ex- yeah. had that experience of people being radicalized. Okay. I right. think we should drop the term radicalized because what we do, we're not defining it. And so we don't know what it means when we say somebody's radicalized or not. Yeah. But the way I look at it is yes. He originally argued that it's a pipeline to the right your show would be a pipeline to the right. Yeah. And the point you're making is actually, no, it's I a pipeline to the left. Yeah. Well, and I've had the same experience in the sense that every time I go to Politicon, I had the same thing. People would walk up to me. I used to be a big time Ben Shapiro fan. I used to be a big time Steven Crowder fan. I used to be a big time fill in the blank with whatever excruciatingly terrible right-wing host, <laughs> Stefan Molyneux, whatever. Yeah. And I started watching your stuff and now I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter and I'm, I'm a lefty. And so, yes, I've had the exact same experience. And, and I wish I, I forgot to bring this up to him. It didn't occur to me in the time. But part of that process of the pipeline to the left is actually giving credit where it's due. Mm. So that's why when you I say... I think that's a good point. It is. And, and I, you know, I've said this a bunch on my channel. I wish I said it to him because I'd be curious in his response. Because I think, I think he would agree, although I don't know. Um, yes, when you say... Correct, Tucker. When you argued against John Bolton and you took the anti-war position and he took the pro-war position, you were right on that. And now let me tell you why the thing you said on economics is actually you're a complete fraud because you say you're in favor of whatever, limiting the amount of money that banks can charge in interest. And then you support Donald Trump, who's in favor of getting rid of all the protections. And, yeah. you know, like so, yes, they're more willing to listen to you when you say, you hey, point over here, credit where credit is due. Exactly. <laughs> but if you just say everything is bad and wrong and terrible and I'm not going to give you credit, even when you say something obviously correct, people are going to shut down and be like, fuck you. I'm not going to listen to you. Well, and that also applies to when you're honest about like the left or the Democratic Party. Like, yes, but I will say this, too. To that point, I think his criticism is true of some people. I just don't think it's true of you. So, And what I mean by that is you do have plenty of lefties who 
they just 24-7 bash Democrats. And it's like, I get it. I understand why you're bashing Democrats. I bash Democrats from a left-wing position, too. But if you're not bashing the Republicans, then you might not even realize the impact that your content is having. Yeah. So, and I think that's a that's a- actually a problem. Like, and the response of like, well, duh, obviously they're, they're terrible. It's like, yes, it's duh to you. But if some fucking 17-year-old who doesn't know their ass from their elbow just gets into politics and starts on your content and they watch 20 videos and every single one of them is bashing Democrats, it's not duh to them. They might be like, oh yeah, the Democrats are terrible. That's what I learned. And so there's, even though there's a big difference between Tim Pool and uh, lefties who bash, only bash Democrats, like ultimately you might end up creating more of the Tim Pool types without even realizing it. I you see what I'm saying? definitely agree with that. Yeah, but and that's not true of you, I, and it's not true of me, I because I bash everybody, and I'm proud to do and that. And, like, <laughs> I'm not going to say I get the balance right, like, that I'm perfect, and I always get the balance right, but I'm very cognizant of that, of, like... Yes, I because know Because in are. some ways, it is less interesting to me what's going on, on the Republican side, because I do feel like they're all ridiculous. They're, there's not one of them who, like, is really... I have any faith in or interest in, but it's still... It's still incredibly relevant, and I do find it interesting in terms—I mean, it's one of two major political parties, and they're going through this whole exercise of, like, trying to pretend they're about something that they're not really about and cloaking themselves in the language of the working class while selling them out. I mean, those dynamics are really interesting to dig into if you do it, you know, if you do it in the right way. So that's definitely something that I'm cognizant of. And also, again, I'm— Vosh posited that he thought my goal was just to, like, convince people Democrats are evil. That's really not my goal at all. Well, I know. And, and, I, try, and I definitely try also to give credit to Biden and the Democrats when they deserve it, because my goal in all of this is just to try to be an honest actor is really the bottom line. Yeah. But see, when he was saying that you didn't I didn't I wanted you to respond the way I just responded now, which is to say, no, actually, I bash Republicans all the time. We do plenty of segments on that. Yeah. But instead of saying that, you went the other direction and said, I give Democrats credit all the time. And I was like, yeah, you should have said I bash Republicans more. Well, I'm going to handle my answers. And I understand I that. But them, no, but the, the, the examples of you giving <laughs> Democrats credit are few and far between to it. I mean, in your defense, it's because they've given you very few things to praise yeah. them over. But I guess my point is is more that my intention isn't doesn't really revolve around the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. It's a it's a different project that's about, you know, the way that people in the population feel about each other and feel about uh, elite institutions and the people who are keeping the status quo the, the way that it is. But yeah, yeah, my my mission mission is different. Um, it's just to tell the truth as I see it. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all it is. I'm yeah. not trying to do anything beyond that, but it just so happens that, you know, my, my content m- somewhat balances out in the sense that I'm sort of going after everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of, and again, that's not purposeful. It's just, that's the way I feel when I look at what's happening, that I end up pointing my machine gun, metaphorical machine gun in every single direction. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think I have... I mean, I, I do have, like, secondary or ancillary goals of, like, unification of the left, but really it's more like pushing the policies that I believe in and mm-hmm. also just calling it as I see it and just talking about whatever I find interesting. I'm under no illusions about how important I am or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think there are people who would argue I'm more important than I actually think I am. Mm. I have, I'm under no illusions about I'm a fucking YouTuber, you know? Like, yes. I'm a YouTuber and a podcaster. That, that has limitations. Granted, when I stepped into the Justice Democrats world, 
those stakes did rise a little bit, but I'm not in that world anymore, you know? I think you're underestimating the amount of influence that you have on people right now because there are a lot of young people who are kind of like, they have a vaguely formed sense of what their political ideology is and they really adopt sort of like the language and the worldview of people that they trust like you. So I do think it matters, Kyle. I No, I mean, I think it matters. I'm just saying I think sometimes people assume I have more power than I actually have. Mm. That's my point. I agree on the influential thing. Yeah, of yeah. course. But... People, there are many people who overstate. And also there are plenty of people who have a sense of self-importance that's, you know, just unreasonable, you know? Mm. Like, I definitely don't have that thing where I feel like I'm so colossally self-important that every move I make is so, so important and matters so much. I think that's so one of the things that people find appealing about you, though, is that you don't carry that thing around, you know? I guess. Yeah, I guess. You know, when... For whatever reason, the the deal you make when you're in the position that you're in or I'm in, it's a very simple deal. People just want to want to be totally honest with me at every step of the way, be completely authentic, and that's all you got to do. It's like that's the deal you make. Now, the downside of that deal is everybody sees your dirty laundry. The downside of that deal is things that other people want to hide in polite society. You got to let hang out, mm -hmm. right? But you know, I, in my opinion, with my kind of personality, that was a no brainer deal. Yeah, I'll tell you fucking everything. Because I know that other people have the same issues, too, you know? So it's like, just let it all hang out there, and it is what it is. And if people happen to like it, then they like it. There are going to be some people who don't, and whatever. It is what it is. But, oh, there's one more thing I wanted to say about Vosh. I actually mm -hmm. jotted it down because it struck me as almost like he said something that was got to the core of, like, every disagreement I, I have with him. Mm. He said at one point that he's utilitarian, quote, utilitarian... Yeah. I don't do anything on principle. Yeah. And I, I was knew, like, I knew oh, the moment he said that. That's it. That's every disagreement him and I have right yeah, there. Because that actually struck me when he said it too. Because I'm I'm the exact I'm total principle. I'm all principle. And I tend to lean more in your direction because I just think when you get into this, like, well, if we do this, then they're going to do that. And then this is going to happen. And then we'll have the opportunity. I just I just think I don't believe in our ability to, like, predict how these things are going to go ultimately. So you have to you have to stick to. I mean, I was thinking about a, a sort of conversation we had on rising with regards to Trump and the grand jury. And there was an argument being made of like, oh, but if he's indicted, then that's just going to make him want to run for office again. And that's bad. Why are we le like, reading these fucking tea like, leaves? Yeah. Well, we don't know what he's don't know any we don't know what he's going to do. No. And I do know that I am fully in support of rich people being held accountable when they are evading taxes. So I don't need to know more than that to know that I think justice, you know, should proceed if he's broken the law, which I am 100% sure that he has. For sure. And, you know, what I would say is there's plenty of people who are playing chess badly. Yeah. And I'm yeah. playing good checkers. That's the <laughs> difference. People could try to play chess all they want and they'll do it badly and you'll strategize and you'll read the tea leaves and all this stuff. And that's attempting to implement, you know, the utilitarian ideas or the consequentialist ideas. But if you're acting from principle, you're playing checkers, not chess. And you could just play that checkers game good. And I think the consequences of that are better, you know? Yeah. Well, this will be a good thing to talk to Vosh about next time we chat with him. Yes, for sure. And I'm, I'm, you know, I will go on his stream at some point in the future and we can continue these conversations. There's plenty of stuff I want to ask him about that we didn't get to. Um, just to tease it for everybody, I was thinking of asking him uh, his thoughts on abolish ICE and defund the police, mm. which would have been an interesting conversation because, you know, 
I'm a critic. I'm a critic of at the at the very least the messaging. I think on substance we might agree. Yeah. But of the actual messaging, I'm 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 critical. And uh, there was some other stuff I had down here. I don't know. Let's see. Oh, I was going to talk to him about trade and protectionism. I know he's not. In, in my position or your well, position. We got into that a little bit. A little bit, but not really. Like, I think he would have gone further in um, defense of certain things if we had more time. Um, but yeah, there's still plenty of stuff to talk about. But yeah, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to him. Thank you guys for hanging out with us. I'm trying to think who we have next week, and I can't really think of it right now, but it's going to be I amazing. Know, I know. I know. Rose McGowan. We do have Rose McGowan next week. And she is awesome and really interesting to talk to and um we may have a little something else for you next week too Wait maybe to find out. maybe maybe just maybe we might have a little additional bonus for you next week and also so uh, well look we, out for that we can't get through a show without doing a shameless um plug but everybody on substack crystal kyle and friends pay the five bucks get the videos every friday um everybody can get the audio for free but it drops saturday a day later so pay the five bucks and uh, get the video. And also, we're on a mission to get in front of Barry Weiss on Substack. When we get in front of her, we'll release a behind-the-scenes video for just the paying subscribers. So you you guys can see what me and Crystal do before the show and everything that goes on here. So anyway, um, have a good one, y'all. <laughs>